this is actually like a warning for all of mm. you. I'm not wearing pants, so if I okay. accidentally lift up a leg too high, here's a little cheat. There goes my knee. Yeah, let's let's Ooh. see. Ooh. That could happen. Let's, because okay. I am doing my laundry and I have no pants right now. <laughs> that's okay. That's, and it won't be that... dry until this podcast is over. Okay. Just like me. <laughs> so many possible worlds, but we got this one. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Welcome to the Worst of All Possible Worlds, the first and only podcast that's sopping wet. I'm the Worst of All Possible AJs. I'm the Worst of All Possible Brian's. And I'm the Worst of All Possible Josh's. Joining us today, uh, we have a very exciting guest. Um, you might know him for being the real-life husband of the real Betty Boop. Mm-hmm. It's Alec yeah. Robbins. It's me. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> What's you up, man? Thank you for making sure everyone knows for sure that I really am married to Betty Boop. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's that. canonical. It's mm-hmm. very important. Yeah. We're talking about Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. One of my favorite things in the world. Yeah. In, in, <laughs> yes! So, yes! So, we're all be pilled. We're all be pilled, baby. I think that you had posted, Alex, something on Twitter or something about this. I post about it all the time. Because you've got a, a website, God. right, where you keep, like, jokes that you find interesting yes. in shows. Yeah. So the most recent pl- place I posted about it was, like, I, I had been keeping a tally of, like, jokes I liked that weren't well-known, like... I don't know, like, everyone knows, like, you know, the, the Bort joke from Simpsons or, like, I mean, like, there's mm-hmm. a million jokes that people always talk about. I'm like, what are the ones that I always laugh at that I never hear people talk about? So I started compiling them, and mm-hmm. one of them wasn't really a joke. It was just, like, <laughs> this scene from uh, Studio 60 that a bunch of cast members behind the scenes on an SNL-type show are practicing their spit takes. Right. And they're yeah. just yeah. drinking water and spitting water on each other and trying to get the timing right. And it's the most insane interpretation of what comedians but professional comedians or performers might be doing behind the stage on a comedy show that gag is so interesting because it's like i can see it being good because it does this this little smash cut from someone getting shot up with like antibiotics or whatever (laughs) straight to like four guys just standing around just blasting water in each other's faces it's why the that's why everyone got sick in that episode yeah so it's like oh this is kind of funny it's like a sort of a almost family guy type cutaway (laughs) it's showing that these guys are absolute imbeciles but then it keeps going right like the scene keeps going on to a point where we're now cut forward into the future where everyone is still dying of uh, COVID. COVID-19 right. in the, uh, the Studio B-12 60. virus. Thank you yeah, very they, much. They, they all, they, it was really yeah. impressive yeah. the way that they, they all got COVID, what, like 13 years, 12 years, yeah. 14 years ahead well, of that, the actual it, pandemic. It was, well, it was actually SARS-1. They were oh. the only U.S. cases of SARS. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing about that scene is when Matthew Perry playing Matt Albee walks in and he's like the head writer. He's, he's the, the yeah. creative head of the show within mm. the show and he like takes a look at all of his cast members and he rolls his eyes he knows this is insane and then he walks out of the room <laughs> and it ends up being the saving grace of the episode that's the sketch that they have to put on at the yeah, last he has to minute do spit take theater oh yeah, yeah. So a brilliant that thing that he writes during a commercial break uh, so <laughs> today what we're going to be doing is taking a look at the first two episodes of studio 60 on the sunset strip yeah but we are diseased enough that all of us watched this whole show in its entirety we this last week so proud of you are all you, yeah had, had any of you seen it before i had seen most of it before 
before. Okay. I okay. had seen everything but the last two episodes, I believe. <laughs> I had some of the most insane episodes. Oh, they're yeah. great. Oh, absolutely. And what <laughs> we'll was weird is I stopped at a cliffhanger. I stopped it when uh, it was revealed that Tom's brother had been kidnapped. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I always pitch the show is like it's a show about what happens behind the scenes at SNL. And then the series finale is about like one of the cast members brothers being a prisoner of war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the West Wing. He just finales it with the West yeah. Wing finale. Yeah. It slowly morphs into the West Wing as it goes on. Absolutely. Because yeah. uh, that's all he knows how to do. And, and we'll talk about that, too. Um, <laughs> I, I had watched this show when it came out. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I had watched that. maybe the first like this is, you know, again, now we're getting a better picture of teenage Josh, right? This guy is watching oh House. This guy is watching this? 24. <laughs> and this guy is watching Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. Um, did, you know, did you did you really like it then? I don't know that I really liked it, but I okay. think that I for me, the thing was, you know, I was 16 at the time. Right. And so I was like, oh, this is all very adult. I'm watching mm, something yes, that is very yes. like, you know, not, not adult in a porn way, but yeah, it had buzz. Exactly. It was, it was Sorkin's yeah. like post West Wing show. And it was like, he's coming back to network TV. Yeah, like it was really old too, is like It aired like a month before 30 Rock, literally on the same network, on the same yes. network. And everyone at the time was like, sorry, Tina Fey, you both have mm -hmm. a very similar premise, but you're not going to be able to beat Aaron Sorkin. You're about to get owned yeah. by Aaron Sorkin. You've been doing comedy your whole life, but you're about to get a smackdown by the guy who made the West Wing. Like, yeah. this show was such a big fucking deal because again, this guy pretty much only produces hits, right? Like, you yeah. can count the number of flops uh, on part of your hand. Like, he is the West Wing di dipped and then he left and then it kept running for more and more seasons. The movie's hit uh the plays are like whatever but they're plays no one gives a shit um yeah and we'll get there Spe and yeah. uh, <laughs> especially not me and so this show they made the pilot and it was subject to a brutal bidding war between the networks right. nbc bought it for like unprecedented amounts of money who were they yeah. bidding against do you know cbs it was cbs it was huh. bidding against sense. cbs and nbc was at the top of its game right at this point because they're they're getting the office out there they're of course getting 30 rock community like all of these very very big properties that have had this incredible um, longevity, yeah. this cultural attachment that people have to these things. They're also the network of SNL. Yeah, uh, which is one of the most psychotic parts of the show. Oh, yeah. Yes. You don't get to find out if SNL still exists in the show until like a few episodes in, I think. Yeah. Someone just casually references that Oh, SNL still exists and it airs on Saturdays right after our show. <laughs> yeah, in New York. Wait, how is the this LA all show? Yeah, that's the other, they buried the lead of the premise. The premise is like, what if it's behind the scenes at a SNL type show? No, what if SNL was on the West Coast is like a way more interesting premise. Yeah, well, and it's not just what if SNL's on the West Coast, right? It's and it airs what on if, Friday. It's, it's the other show. So you've got presumably Mad TV because Fox also exists in this universe. Right. Just to be yes, very right. clear, there are five major networks in yes. this show. NBS yes. is the fifth. So you've got Studio 60 on Friday night and then presumably you've got Mad TV and SNL going head to head on Saturday. And why would you call so it? many cans of worms, yeah. Why would yeah. you call it NBS? Like the whole point is that they're like um, setting it up to be parallel to NBC, <laughs> parallel to SNL. Can, it's like, no, these also are there. I can answer that question. It's okay. because that channel has no BS. Mm. 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 I wish I were kidding. So wait, um, really? Oh yes. no. So here's oh. and here's the other thing too is that not only does SNL exist in this universe, so does the West Wing. 
Yes. So does Aaron oh, Sorkin and Bradley that. Whitford and all yep. these people who are just like wandering around. Like Allison Janney is acting with the guy who plays Danny in the West Wing. Oh, and right. goes, That's what it is. Yes. It's really weird. It's when she you hosts. look like the guy <laughs> that I was doing the show with. Like the show actually caves in on itself like a dying star uh. about five episodes before <laughs> yeah. it finale. So we'll get to, you know, more of the plot and stuff in a little bit. But, you know, now we sort of talked <laughs> so about. enticing. <laughs> <laughs> We talked now about a bit about the overview of like what this thing is, how it got made. And Alec, I actually am curious to hear from you, like yeah. what your initial exposure was to this thing and how it is that you've continued to like find God. it so fascinating over the years. I truly have no clue. I definitely first watched it in college. I was very late. I did not watch it when it aired. I, I remember it being around. Um, I was like not interested in watching the West Wing or anything. And I didn't care about Aaron Sorkin. Um mm. Right. Probably watched it before the newsroom. I'm pretty sure that's the timeline. And the newsroom mm. came out and I was like, oh, he's doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He reuses like entire plots and like subjects and jokes Both and dialogue exchanges. Start with a network riff. With yeah. like, yes. like a, Both like a just an homage to network in a way. I guess the, the newsroom one went extremely viral. That was like I guess it was right, a that's good thing that he tried people actually responded yeah. to. Yeah, like yeah. people, it, it gets shared on Facebook probably still today. Yeah. yeah. And this one was like, we're doing the network monologue, and just like with NBC and SNL, we're going to keep referencing network for the rest of this episode. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, we get it. We know what you yeah, just we know did. What you're doing. We know well, what you're doing. Like, my context is I've always been, like, in the comedy world. Like, at the time I watched it, I would have been doing stand-up in Michigan, and mm. uh pretty deeply exposed to like how depressing and sad and yeah uh, the, br- the brutal reality like, of the Kalamazoo stand-up comedy scene yeah just being like <laughs> at like an open mic in Grand Rapids at like right a ho- oh. at, a, at a hotel uh bar oh god oh, oh you're like in the lobby of the yes. fucking Amway yeah. Grand Hotel like <laughs> a place Sunday Night the- Funnies that I used to go to almost every Sunday yeah the you- same crucible that forged <laughs> Tim Allen yes <laughs> <laughs> except he was he was at Mark Ridley's I think that was like his home club which is in oh, okay. uh, royal oak and I, I only went there a few times i used to perform at the open mic there and it was like too classy for us it was like too serious no, Alec, okay. were you in the back <laughs> practicing spit takes before your set was that a See, thing you were doing that's what i'm getting at is like i remember watching that <laughs> scene in particular that always stuck with me because i'm like you're insane you work with comedians he's clearly like met comedians he works in yes. hollywood uh this is not like a foreign world to him but it still is being interpreted by someone who like wants to wring all possible drama out of yeah something that is like not that glorious and if he wants to treat it with the same gravity and reverence as the west wing as like politics and, yeah um when in reality comedy is like eight depressing people in the back room of a bar all just <laughs> counting down the seconds till they get to go up on stage for an audience of other depressed comics mm-hmm. <laughs> and i mean like i've also done improv i know like what that world's like and it's it's kind of like the theater kid version of that where everyone's in denial and really peppy and, and chipper and like they, they're just they just don't want to admit that they're depressed. So it's like no matter where you look at it, comedy is the most painful place to be existing at a low level. It's 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 like this podcast, too. It's it's, you know, similar vibe. <laughs> I didn't say that. This is an episode that I have been reluctant to do uh, <laughs> since the beginning of this podcast, because as a dirtbag left podcast, I feel like. Aaron's going to come up at some point because he is sort of a pretty easy punching bag. 
uh, for the left. And when I was 17 years old, I originated a role in the Farnsworth Invention, which was a show at the La Jolla Playhouse written by Aaron Sorkin and directed <laughs> by Des Makinoff. Aaron and I got along like gangbusters. Uh, he was always incredibly kind to me in a way that he absolutely did not have to be to a child actor, even though at 17, I kind of balanced that fine line between being a kid and being an adult in a way that no one in the cast had any idea what to do with me. Yeah, you've always been kind of an old Italian man. Yes, like. I have been. An old curmudgeon <laughs> Italian man. There was one guy, I was in the bathroom doing my hair for the show, and uh, one of the other cast members was shaving next to me, and he turned and looked at me, he's like, you know, you want to use hot water when you shave, because <laughs> it gets all the hair up, and then cold water afterwards. That actor, Matthew Perry. <laughs> um... And so <laughs> this is fascinating. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and so I was and the Farts with Invention premiered in 2007 in March of 2007. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> so I was there when Aaron found out that this was canceled. Right. Uh, it was closing night of Farnsworth. And it was. Oh, wow. It was the night that he found out. And he was obviously super bummed about it. But the writing had been on the wall for a while. He wasn't in rehearsals for a lot of it because he was, quote, trying to save his TV show. Uh, so oh, he was sure. in L.A. doing a lot of meetings and trying to figure out budget stuff because, you know, the downfall of Studio 60, you know, regardless of quality or what people think about it, was actually just money. This thing cost. It's an expensive looking show. Yeah. It is impressive. Like, yeah, it took three million dollars an episode for this thing. And they just kept Jesus. trying to find different ways to cut, cut costs because... Uh. It has a pretty stacked cast, I think, all things it considered. It does. No, no, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm always, I've am always i always been very hesitant to sort of approach any of these topics about Aaron, because sure. it, he is somebody that I knew personally who was always very kind to me, but it's also, I watched this show and it drained the life out of me, slowly, <laughs> but surely. And again, I think a lot of this stuff does work about it, but I absolutely don't think it's above reproach, and I'm really oh, excited God. to finally dig into this show, because yeah. it has haunted me like a specter ever sense <laughs> i i think the the point that you make aj about like and, and 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 alec the point that both of you make about his facility with an understanding of actors is really really crucial i know he cast me so <laughs> nice <laughs> there's a part a little bit later on in the show where they have to deliver a piece of bad news to the actors and all the actors get in a room and they're immediately wondering what they did wrong and to yeah. me that was like oh you really do understand actors. yeah like, he's, you, he's you, good yeah. at that you get it <laughs> yeah, um, yeah yeah so it's it's just this interesting balance between those two components. And I feel like when he is tapping into what makes the characters tick, it's usually at least baseline somewhat interesting. It's the other stuff that yeah. is often in tension with that. And I feel like the pilot itself is a fantastic example of those two dynamics. He really does understand a lot of things. Like it's a very lived in show. Yes. And yet mm -hmm. everything surrounding comedy and what SNL is like, <laughs> he is completely ignorant It's out of, of his frame of reference. Yeah, yeah, he's out of yeah. his depth. He's making huge assumptions. And you can tell, like, this is someone who has reverence for theater. This is someone who has reverence yeah. for yep. the stage and for, like, the production of television. He really does care and get it. And he puts a lot of, like, time into showing those details. And they're mm -hmm. pretty accurate. Like, you know, like the, the Cal, the director, who's like, you know, just you, yeah. see, they, you see him behind the scenes all the time, like, directing shots. And that's... Very cool to see, but then you hear him like talk about how to write a sketch in the writer's room of a comedy show. It, and, and one really great example of that exact thing of being like, 
well, we've got to do a dramatic like I've been in I've been in high stakes producer meetings where things are debating getting cut. So I know what this thing would be like is what kicks off this episode, the pilot. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. We've got fucking Judd Hirsch out here and he's fighting with this <laughs> other guy who represents the network. Michael um, Stolbarg. Yeah. 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 But at least and, he's in it. He's only in the first episode. Judd Hirsch is like, yeah. you know we got to put this sketch on. It's so important, but it's really controversial. Oh, no. And Josh, what's the name of the sketch? So, wait, 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 I need to like set it up even more. They draw yeah. it out for so long. Oh, they yes. build up this yeah. controversial sketch oh, that they refuse to put on the air. Yes. And you're like, what's it going to be? What what could right. this sketch be in 2006 that's going to blow? Yeah. What's the name of the sketch, Alec? The sketch is called Crazy Christians. What? <laughs> What? Come on. And, and like we can't so see much, it. We they have to just go it. off of names. They will never yeah. show. They show other sketches. They never give you a glimpse of Crazy Christians. Yeah. Crazy Christians. You can't, you can't do you that, can't air that on TV. You can't air that on broadcast Christians? television. Crazy? <laughs> In America? <laughs> and it's like, it's the first clue into how fucked this show is because like a huge central pillar of the show is this relationship between Matt Albee and one of the cast members, Harriet Hayes. Mm-hmm. And yes. the, the driving wedge between them has very little to do with like who they are as people and more about mm-hmm. she's extremely religious and he is an atheist. Yes. And like they're butting heads over that. They have like real issues as a couple, but like the show yes. really only cares about this religious which angle. is also weird because yeah. that's not really how relationships work like well, well it might be how one particular relationship you're not yeah, we'll yeah, that later. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the other thing hanging over all of this which is but, a deeply fucked element but yeah like, in terms of this controversy over the sketch crazy christians right yeah uh, judd hirsch gets the note from the network that they've got to cut the sketch, right? And so Mm -hmm. he goes on during the cold open, which is this, you know, standard issue, like SNL direct address, you know, somebody's being George W. Bush. Nick Cordray is doing Bush. And and we're having some fun here because we get D.L. Hughley. He's doing like the the introduction thing. He's He's talking to the audience about the technical stuff. This stuff is great. I love all of this shit. I love whenever they're like a warm up comic. It's great. I love this stuff whenever they have a problem with like, someone used the wrong script format or they don't have yes. the right type of, of tape player. It's exhilarating. Right? They're using, you know, it's like that stuff is awesome to watch. It's yeah. so much fun. Yep. And then it's back to this shit. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, Rob Corddry's brother is doing his Bush impression. Yeah. And then the network moment happens. So I think what Aaron is really good at is edging his audience. Uh, I think none more so than in this opening. Like he really, the reason why it's so drawn out this argument about crazy Christians and like, it's so perfectly paced so that by the time he's delivering this tirade, uh, you know, it, it feels like enough momentum has been built that you're so excited to see him just rail against mm. what he thinks is like bad television. It's basically your the, the remote control in your hand is a crack pipe. He screams down the right. barrel of a camera and the director, Cal, will not cut away right <laughs> from him. And uh, we get we get these quick cuts between what's going on on stage, like a close-up of Judd Hirsch, again, very network-esque, shots of, of the control room and what's happening on, you know, the different monitors. Yeah. And then, of course, the close-ups of Cal, who's being berated by the network head to, like, cut the feed, cut the feed, cut the feed. And, of course, this is one of those things that network did so much better because <laughs> network, like, grounded right. it in the reality of what it's like to be in a control room like that, yeah. which is no one gets excited, right? Because you can't. You have to be, like, a fucking, like... 
air traffic controller. Everything yeah. is so focused. Like I, I bet there was one point in that in the Oscars when uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, where someone went, "Oh wow." Anyway, <laughs> camera two. Like yep. that's about as animated <laughs> as those fucking oh. guys get. Huh. How about that? <laughs> like, All right, we're gonna need to cut okay. the mic. Camera three. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. But that's it. That. Yeah. Those guys, stage managers in theater, are the same way. Like you have to mm-hmm. be the cool head under pressure, and so does the room. He wanted to create this dramatic thing that doesn't really share much of a resemblance with what the real world would, w- yeah. would look like. Which is a problem throughout the whole show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He he likes to write these sort of fantasy worlds. He cited that as kind of a problem when he left the West Wing. He was like, well, our our White House has moved so far away from George Bush's White House. But I think that's what ended up getting people to come back to it, because then they could pretend that there was this functioning America Mm -hmm. while George Bush was just doing whatever the fuck he wanted to do. And then the newsroom is the perfect example of that fantasy, because it's like, here's what the news did three years ago. And here's what I would do differently. Yeah, Yeah, with 2020 (laughs) hindsight, here's how I would fix everything. But it is it allows you to buy into that fantasy. Right. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing about the West Wing is that there are a lot of people who are like, oh, no, this isn't a fantasy. This is how government works. And it's that I think that's sort of the main the big problem is that people go into West Wing thinking, oh, this is how I think government should. Work. Yeah. And that's like so like out of the three shows we just mentioned, like the reason I like Studio 60 and can watch it while I can't watch the other two is like <laughs> the West Wing feels really like it just reminds me too much of deluded people of like, yeah. people who, oh, who interesting. Wish this is how it worked. This is like what I really think it's like and not understanding that it's not at the time and like going back to it as like this nostalgia Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the newsroom is this like poisonous, like pretentious. Oh, didn't you think of this sort of scenario where I'm like, yeah. I can't sit through somebody lecturing anyone like that. But Studio 60 exists in this weird space where it has all of those elements, but it's serving the most pointless shit ever, which is a comedy show. Yes. <laughs> and it mixes in the high stakes of the other two shows, which feels so out of place here. It's wild how out of place it is. But Judd Hirsch, it must be said, knocks it out of the park in the two scenes he's oh, in, kills it. Yeah. in the entire series. The fact he doesn't come back is wild yeah. to me. Because they it's, mention him a lot all yeah. the time. And like, yeah, so he's presiding over SNL in its bad years you know because snl has just turned bad it used to be good but now it's bad that's mm. that's the truth that's not the thing. SNL, snl brian studio 60 on the sunset strip this is a right, different yeah. show uh-huh. this is not sure. saturday night live and yes. so it's really interesting especially since mark mckinney actually shows up a little bit later this is just episode one of slings and arrows up until the network moment <laughs> right it's, it's oliver you know when he was played by Stephen wimette the voice of beetlejuice um going around directing some oh God, horrible production of midsummer night's dream except Slings and Arrows also has the decency to do something better with it, which is just he ends up getting drunk, falling down in the middle of the street and getting run over by a pig truck and dying. Yeah. Um, This one, he just gets fired and then we never see him again. And then we meet the protagonists of the show. We do. So let's 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 go into that next, shall we? Um, It's the next magic here. I love these two. (laughs) This show has like eight protagonists. So we're going to have to introduce all of them somewhat briefly. Octo manufacturing. They all get their own own title cards, though. So we've got Jordan, right? Jordan's the first one. This is Amanda Peet. She is the new head of programming at the network. And uh, she's being welcomed to the media group by Ed Asner, who is like the president of the whole like fucking thing. I want Macau. (laughs) She's at this dinner and she gets a call in the middle of it. And it's like, oh, no, what's happened? You know, something crazy is going on down at Studio 60. What's her deal? What drives her? 
Uh, do we find her compelling as a character in She's any a way, shape, or form? She is a woman. Uh, Alec, I'll start with you. You know, it's literally like, what if a woman was in charge? And what if everybody <laughs> underestimated her? And what mm. if also she was actually really good at her job? Ooh. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's mm. it's this thing that the show is so proud of itself for doing. Mm-hmm. And it never yes. lets you forget. And like characters are constantly going like, oh yeah, how are you going to handle this? You're probably going to do this. She's like, no, actually... I'm going to do this thing nobody ever could have thought of, and it's going to sound crazy, but just trust me, it'll work. And then it does, and everyone's like, is she the real deal? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and then like Jack will be like, ah, fuck. I hate her. I hate her so much for being right. Amanda Peet is kind of, Jordan is kind of a flipper to jib it a little bit. You know, like she, she, she's a little bit absent-minded and like, like her, like she'll go off on like little weird tangents, but she mm-hmm. always has the right answer in the end. Yeah. She and makes I, a lot of mistakes too. Yes. Like, and they, they make mm-hmm. sure, like she'll get people's names wrong because she's new to the studio or new to the, new to the network. And like, uh, she'll also like make, oh, also she's funny. That's like a thing the show mm-hmm. wants you to know. She's actually got a sense of humor. And mm-hmm. she'll impress the the writers of Studio 60 multiple times with her timing. Yeah, um, yeah. Bradley Whitford has a line where he says, you look like one of them, but you talk like one of us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yes. God. That line. Oh, amazing. She is an advocate for the creatives, for someone like... <laughs> Uh, Edward Albee, the author of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, who's going to come in as the showrunner for yes. Saturday Night Live. Yes. When Ed Astor's on screen, all he's ever talking about is Macau or listing yep. people's resumes. Like, this opening dinner, he just sits down and he's like, Jordan, you're the top of your class, and so-and-so. And I love the dinner parties where I sit down and tell people where they came from. It's a very <laughs> good... He loves the as-you-know exposition mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he'll yeah. even have someone be like have you mm-hmm. heard of this and they'll say yes and he's like anyway th- here's what this is the most <laughs> egregious like, they said yes <laughs> the most egregious exposition in the first episode is like i think jordan's talking about the big three which are the main three cast members mm-hmm. of of studio 60 and a guy another exec goes wait the big three why are we talking about detroit <laughs> <laughs> And Stephen Weber as Jack goes like, no, no, she's talking about the cast members, the big three, and that explains what that means. Just another man from the heartland who just doesn't know what's going on in television. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Jordan Jordan matters because she's been brought in to turn around the network, right? Like yes. the programming, as we learned from Judd Hirsch's network moment, it has been trending toward the tawdry and the mundane. And so they're really hoping to give it a real shot in the arm. In fact, uh, we learn not only is she, you know, competent or whatever, we even learn at one point that she is so good at what she did that when she mm. left her previous network or when she came to the network or some shit, uh, TMG stock dropped three eighths of a point is a thing that she says. Now, three eighths mm. of a point is 37 cents for reference at the time. <laughs> GE, which owns NBC, was trading around one hundred sixty seven dollars a share. That is not a meaningful differentiation, but it's in the script, and I wanted to point that out. No, it's very important, actually, because there's going to be a lot of jargon thrown into this dialogue that it makes its characters sound incredibly smart, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of dialogue that does not hold up to scrutiny once you right. start examining it. Exactly. But, but it's an incredible skill that Aaron has where you can have... Uh, this dialogue that sounds very smart and then it makes you yeah. feel smart while listening to it. Yes. Like it it's not hard to grasp what he's saying either. You you follow. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's sort of like it's sort of like listening to something in that's half English, half a different language. You feel like you're learning the other language because you have oh, that sure. baseline of English in there uh, yeah. and you feel smarter coming out the other side of it. I always feel so pr- after I watch an Aaron Sorkin thing, I've never felt more productive in my life. I sit down on my computer <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out bangers because my brain just 
just it, like electrifies it. <laughs> um, also, Three Six Mafia is here. Yes. Uh, yes. God. Yes. yes. And is it Felicity Huffman as the host? Is Felicity Huffman as yeah, the host? Okay. And this is another decision that the show makes: is that every episode they actually have like. In the world of the show, like in the show itself, they have a yeah. guest star and a guest and a musical guest like SNL. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes the, the show of that evening takes place across multiple episodes. So you'll see that guest star. You, right. Like Alice and Janney's there for like two or three episodes. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Studio 60 is enormous. And I think that's the big difference between it and SNL. Studio 60 yes. is a giant ass building. It's they uh, have the whole, the it's whole theater. Yeah. They have the whole building. Yeah. yeah. And you can walk and talk while the broadcast is happening while they are live you can have a walk and talk in the upper hallway you'll be fine no one's gonna hear you yep and uh one such walk and talk happens with the introduction of jack rudolph now jack rudolph is the uh chair of nbs he's the chair of the yeah. network mm-hmm. he is the guy he shot lee harvey oswald in broad daylight jack mm-hmm. is uh you know we've got this great walk and talk he's moving along there's a pa who naturally a woman who tries to stop him <laughs> he, tells, right? he tells her to shut yeah. up so. It would not be a Sorkin show if a woman was not fucking told to shut Absolutely. up and shown uh, just exactly uh, how she's being wrong and annoying. Just a little capper for Jordan. Yes. Please, a spoiler if you haven't seen the whole show, the whole show, but for a character that starts <laughs> off with such like a loud statement about being a woman in this industry, yeah. her arc, her character is relegated to giving birth for three episodes off screen for the mm-hmm. last few like for the end totally of the show totally off screen my guess, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my guess is that they could death. not afford to pay her for three episodes Th- that's I think, possible yeah, yeah i think she had moved on and done i think i think it's called martian boy this like little indie picture that she that got put out that same year i think that she was like uh, okay i've got another project just, that i'm working leave, on yeah, now right yeah the yeah. writing was on the wall for the show after christmas like they were yeah. like we're, we're we're doing the full season but i don't think we're getting past that so <laughs> so uh jack that and after this walk and talk, after he tells the woman to shut up, they go into the Three Six Mafia dressing room, which is full of weed smoke, to watch the tape of what Judd Hirsch they did. Now they can't stop smoking reefers. In a, in you know? a good sure version can. of this show, they would all get really, really like they would leave the room and all be high as hell, like that one episode of Party Down. <laughs> yes. Um, but that does not happen here. Yeah. Unfortunately. Later, later on, Jack does get drunk a lot. Like the, the last four episodes that Jack Rudolph is in, oh, he's yeah, just he's absolutely wasted. <laughs> yes. But they just speaking they, of it Party was too Down, early. by the way, he has a great role in Party Down. Yes, he does. Yes, he sure yeah, does. I Ricky Sargalesh. But uh, yes. yes, Jack is portrayed by Steven Weber. I love this character. I think he's like they use him as the villain constantly because, of course, he's he's the mm-hmm. evil studio guy. Like, yeah. yeah, he's he's the one you need to have there in opposition. And then Sorkin gets such mileage out of like having the good guys slowly change his mind or mm-hmm. having him like mm-hmm. stop and sit. And he's like, you fucking did it. OK, fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just that that energy is like really satisfying to watch. And he does a good job with this grumpy guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also like this is a show fundamentally divided against itself because there's everything that's happening in Studio 60. But then there's also all the plot lines that are just happening at the network yeah. that have nothing to do right. with Studio 60. <laughs> and right. it's the most boring shit you've ever seen in your goddamn life. There's a point where they're just talking about a pilot that we'll never see <laughs> they develop an entire plot about the U- the UN I think oh yeah right. oh my god I forgot yeah. about that show it's yeah, yeah. so good yeah, it's like oh yeah we could produce some reality show about farts or whatever no no or... and actually I want to I want to as long as we're on <laughs> yeah. this tangent yeah. I want to be very clear that it's it's the choice Fart is between Island. this uh, reality show that actually sounds like yeah. something that I 
would watch. Yeah. Uh, it is a yeah, reality oh, show absolutely. where like they get a private investigator to go through their entire history. And so like all their dirty laundry gets aired on TV and they have to like confront it. I would watch the shit out of that. Who would the, agree to that is my question. I don't know. People, People would agree, agree to, to Room Raiders. That, that's not even a question. People would absolutely agree yeah. to that. I mean, yeah, right. It feels like Charlie, Charlie Brooker always did a good joke about this with uh, someone finally getting their first TV show on the air and it's just called Sick on a Widow and it runs for eight <laughs> seasons where people just walk up to widows and throw up on them. Right. And so the, the, the big thing is here, will NBC produce Sick on a Widow or will it produce something that actually elevates the conversation that makes people smarter and better which is a like fucking say hour-long drama written by an off-broadway like a rising off-broadway playwright about yes. fucking united hmm, nations what do you they mention this in universe somebody's like wow a drama about the united nations that sounds really boring and i'm like yeah yeah it really does, it does doesn't yeah. it like yeah. i don't even think fucking hbo could pull that off and, and you I'm definitely couldn't pull it's it off like, on basic network like, television yes <laughs> They, they say off-Broadway playwright like that means anything. It's like it's probably Neil LeBute. Right I am an off-Broadway playwright. I just want to be very clear that yes. I am an off-Broadway playwright. Let's and get I'm your on a UN podcast. show on NBS. Let's Absolutely. Do Absolutely. This whole UN thing is so funny to me because I think it comes from, okay, well, two of the main characters in this cast are not actually working on Studio 60. They are working for the network. Right. And so you have to start contriving reasons for these two to like be giving their time and attention to one mm-hmm. of like 50 shows they have to be paying attention to. Right. And and so, it also gives them an yeah. opportunity to create conflict as well. Right. Because yeah. like this fucking situation with do we do the reality show or do we do the UN mm. show that yeah. it creates an immediate wedge between Jordan and Jack. It's not an interesting wedge, <laughs> but it's at least something to write around because you have yeah. to fill 22 hour long episodes with content. <laughs> right, right. But I think it dilutes like what's actually happening because it doesn't tie back to Studio 60 at oh, all. Oh, like, absolutely. The, yeah. the brilliance yeah. of 30 Rock, besides being, you know, 20 minutes shorter, yeah. is that it's able to always tie like what Jack's doing into what uh, Liz Lemon is doing because he they always consult each other on what they're doing. So it's mm-hmm. all one cohesive universe. This feels like two completely different shows that are like duct taped together yes. with a hope yeah. and a prayer. Well, and, and that's that's sort of the interesting thing. And we 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 get it that metastasizes by the end where the whole show is just about a hostage situation and a person who had a, a difficult labor completely off screen is yeah. like the West Wing and the newsroom are kind of inherently about stuff that's happening off screen. It's about yes. stuff that's happening over there. And what are you going to do about it through the realm of politics or through the realm of media? But this is a show about people making a show. Yep. That's what the show is supposed to be. Right. It's people yeah. putting stuff together. And if you don't want it to be a workplace thing, then you just start making it about the people. Right. Yeah. Like, but he can't do that. So then it has to be about a fucking like ISIS or not ISIS yet. A Taliban hostage situation. <laughs> yeah. The thing about the the conflict or whatever dramatically or like making it about people versus making it about work. One way that he tries to thread that needle in this first episode is by being like, OK, so Jordan, you know, she's got her own ideas about how to do the thing. And one of the things she wants to do at Studio 60 is she wants to bring back two guys who Jack fired. Yeah. You know, will they come back? Will they come back to write the show? Because, again, Judd Hirsch is out the door at this point. So they need yes. a new head writer. And so Jordan's like, well, let's get these guys back. And so now it cuts to the WGA award. <laughs> 2006 and WGA Awards. That's right. <laughs> and uh, we are it here. A, it, was a, it was a hot year. It was a hot year. <laughs> yeah. And we are here with uh, Matt and Danny. 
This is Matt Alby and Danny. What's Trip. his name? Trip. His name Danny is Danny Trip. Trip. Yeah. Now, I think, AJ, you had something here about naming conventions. Yes. Uh, with regard to Aaron Sorkin. So let's hear it. So the story that Aaron will always tell in pretty much every interview about why he got interested in writing was that when he was a kid, his parents would take him to see Broadway shows. And the one he always cites is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? He saw it when he was like seven or eight years old. He had no idea what was happening, but he loved the sound <laughs> of the language, like the percussive, mm. the percussiveness of the language uh, is what inspired him to become a writer. So Matt Albee, his stand in in the universe, he gives a tribute to the man that inspired him and then pronounces his name wrong. They call him Matt yes. Albee Alby. for the entirety of the show, <laughs> and it's Matt Albee. His name is Edward Albee, uh, which I think is very, very funny. But yeah, also, and very famously, Edward Albee would correct anyone who called him Edward Albee. Oh, Alby. yeah, yes. like that Diane Rehm interview on NPR. Oh, it's so funny. Deeply uncomfortable, but there is... <laughs> but Aaron also pulls off an interesting trick here, because usually if he has a surrogate in the show, it's every character, let's be real about this. Every character yes, is there's Aaron. So many, there's so many Aaron sort in Studio 60 yeah. alone. Yes, and in West Wing particularly, yeah. I think he did a really good job of just being like, okay, so there are no characters, there is just me talking to myself. <laughs> uh, but in this one, he did try and go for a couple of different like other characters, because Jordan is not like sort of his usual protagonist. She's a little bit like his girl Friday more. She's got like kind of a pluck and viv about her. Uh, but Danny Tripp and Matt Alby are the same person split in two. It yes. is just a mm -hmm. convention yeah. so that Aaron can talk to himself. And I guess you could make the argument that like Danny Tripp is supposed to be like his Tommy Schlamy, which is the real name of the director <laughs> yeah. of both the West Wing and this show, Thomas Schlamy. His name is Thomas Schlamy. And so that Dane Tripp is supposed to be based on that, but he gives all of his like cocaine addiction to. Uh, Danny Tripp and then keeps it for Matt Albee until midway through the series where he's yeah, like fuck it. Matt Albee is also a pills. drug addict. Yes. So yes. Yeah. Like when I think of the show it's like I, I remember Matt being the drug addict then I started over I'm like oh yeah no it was but that gets dropped and traded. No, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> they start and he's like he's on like Percocet or something because he had a back surgery or allegedly he's had high a back during surgery. The first episode. He keeps right. saying legally, legally, I'm allowed to be. But yeah. then they they keep referencing that uh, that trip got caught with cocaine, which is something that actually happened to Aaron Sorkin in 2001. He got yes. caught at the Burbank airport with crack and marijuana and mushrooms in his luggage. Mm hmm. And uh, thank God for him that it was before 9-11. No that would have just been like a yeah. disaster for him later on. Yeah. But, you know, and, and he's he's talked about that. He wrote an American president uh, while he was just freebasing every single night <laughs> that he was working on that movie. Yeah. Um, a lot and of I mean, West you can too. you can tell that cocaine is a part of his process, <laughs> and and it, that actually sort of gets it's weird how like poorly the treatment of the drug stuff is, like how how kind of just like hacky and not interesting it is when he is actually trying to pick apart something that is autobiographical, right? And yeah. about his own the issues with having to meet these commitments of writing the way that he writes, and also dealing with this drug problem that helps him do it. There is the scene where like Matt finds out and like mm -hmm. his reaction is to be very sympathetic, which I always I'm like, oh, that's yeah. an impressive choice. Like, yeah, because <laughs> I mean, I think but, it's very easy to have people react poorly and have that be interesting drama. But like, no, it's it's a way to illustrate that these two care about each other. And they have yeah. such good chemistry. These they two. Yes, excellent, they do. It is chemistry. really fun to watch. They're them. really not on screen together enough, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so Bradley Whitford's character has had an issue with cocaine. So right. he's like a, an issue with like studio insurance. He's not going to be able to make his next movie, which uh, he's made. Making a movie about Nikola Tesla, 
the inventor. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Yep. Much like someone who might be writing a Broadway-bound play about Farmsworth yeah. and his invention <laughs> of the, the television. TV. Well, 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 what have we well, here? Well, well, well. Really, the only times we would see Aaron uh, would be when, like, big-name producers would come to see the show. So that's mm. how, uh, you know, the night Spielberg was there, he came and did a little whining dining. And also the night that Christian Chenoweth came. <laughs> yeah. Which... Let's talk about that. They seemed <laughs> fine. <laughs> I got to meet her. She was very nice. She's very small. I, nice. I grabbed onto her hand and I felt like she would shatter into a million pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt and Danny are an odd couple, right? We, we've sort of talked about this, but like Matt plays by his own rules, right? And, yeah. and Danny sort of moderates his renegade tendencies. But, you know, but he gets results. God but they damn get it. results. Sure God does. damn it. And the, but the thing that Matt is most upset about, and this connects to what you just mentioned, AJ, with Kristen Chenoweth, mm-hmm. Matt is very sad because his girlfriend <laughs> dumped him. He's so sad. He is. He's very sad. Uh, uh, he, he's the saddest he, boy. He's the saddest boy. And right after this, there's a title card that says The Big Three, and we meet the first of The Big Three. This is Harriet Hayes, played by Sarah Paulson. Her main character traits are that she's a Christian and... Blonde. <laughs> she's supposed to be the funniest cast member. Like I think, like mm-hmm. it's it's By known far, that she's yeah. like the the best part of the show. Like she's she, the thing that's keeping it going. Yeah, like, she's supposed to be like. We see Kate no McKinnon. evidence of her being funny in the show. Yeah, yeah. which is not Never a knock on Sarah Paulson. It's just like the show can't pull that off. It can't right now convince yeah. you. That she's anyone's like she's funny. like Lucille Ball. She can't make a joke. But she can deliver her lines the, the the funnier than anyone else. Right. Right. Yes. That that is supposed to be what she's able to do. Well, it's a lot like watching like a superhero movie and everyone keeps telling you this is a superhero. And then you yeah. never yeah. see a scene yeah. <laughs> where they do anything heroic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's wild because it, it also it's one of those things that like I feel like the big three we're, we're starting to get into like D, D.L. Hughley's character. GM, Chrysler and Ford. Yes, the big three. <laughs> Not those. Uh, but also Nate Cordry is Tom. And the thing that struck me most is, I don't know. I mean, Alec, I think you could probably speak to this more, but I've hung out with comedians mm-hmm. in my time. Um, usually there's more bits being tried out. You know, there's a little bit usually more. Usually they're spitting more. They're doing a lot of spit, a lot takes. Of spit, spit takes. Drowning <laughs> in spit takes. This is where I could, yeah, the, the show gets comedy so wrong in the type of people who are comedians. <laughs> it, it really just thinks they're all theater people. Yes, 100%. And it doesn't, it doesn't get that, like, comedians are very, like, vicious, mean, and, mm-hmm. like, not mm-hmm. always. That's not that's not true across the board. But, like, if you're hanging out with comedians, there's um, a lot more, like, bitterness going around, in my experience. Uh-huh. And a lot less camaraderie and if there is camaraderie it's all because you're all like ripping on something together or you're all sort of engaging in a a bit together that you're having like Mm -hmm. and it's always like a like a pretty good bit because they're frustrated they can't be funny elsewhere (laughs) generally like if if a bunch of comedians are just like fucking around it's usually pretty funny like genuinely Mm because they're 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 letting off steam and like they know how to (laughs) and you don't see any of that in this and if they're being funny in this it's like it's not funny. It's just like what a what Sorkin thinks funny is. In this scene that we have introducing the three of them again, this is Harriet Hayes, uh, Tom Jeter, Nate Cordry, and Simon Stiles, who's D.L. Hughley, uh, yes. one of the original king, one of the actual original kings of comedy. They're all just like talking about the show in this scene, and they're talking about like, oh, the producer, you know, he made that call, and it was just so important. And it's like I can't buy. 
that they would care about the big picture in this way. Not not that they wouldn't care about the big picture. I don't buy that they would be treating it as so important, right? Yes. Like comedians care yeah. about their work and they are passionate about their work, but only the most delusional of them believe that their work has like real life political yes. consequences, right? It's, it's not and that I was wondering way, yeah. if you could speak to that a little bit more, Alex. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I was going to say the other thing too, like other comedians I've hung out with aren't funny in conversation. They're just quiet or they're right. like, they're not interested mm -hmm. in trying to be funny around other people. They just like, you know, I can do that on stage. I can do that when it's asked of me, but I just want to be a person. I don't know. Most comedians like definitely have an ego that I've met. Um, I certainly do. But it's like I kind of know that what I'm doing is not that important when I'm doing it. Um, and if it like resonates, that's great. That's like a bonus. I think enough comedians have had to like eat shit for so long that mm, they're mm. under no illusions that like what they're doing is glorified. There's yeah. <laughs> like there's there, if you get plucked up into fame in any way, you stop being a comedian, you start being a celebrity. Like it's not mm -hmm. the same thing anymore. So like comedy never gets to be glorious. It's just. But it's interesting that perspective that people have on SNL specifically the mm -hmm. real SNL. I'm not just referring to the show within this show right. as, as SNL. I mean, the real thing, because people do jack off about it all the time. People who are just like, no, it's so important that they get Alec Baldwin out there to do Donald Trump. Oh, right, Otherwise, yeah. Trump is going to win. Did yeah, you ever know? read Alec the... bought into that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah. Did you ever read you, the Alec. oral history of <laughs> SNL, the, the book that they, they keep updating it. Like every few years, they add like a bunch of new shit from the new cast members. Yeah, it's like, I don't think I'd really recommend it, but like it is a fascinating <laughs> read because it's, it's yeah. an oral history and it's interviews with everybody from across like every era of SNL. One thing that that is kind of true about that book is they all do speak about it with reverence, but it's because SNL is what that is. It's like right, such yeah. an institution. It has a real history and like mm -hmm. whether it's good or bad or you like it or don't, it's been on the air for so long and so many like culturally important celebrities have come out of it. So it, like everyone from Chevy mm -hmm. Chase to Will Ferrell, like and everyone in between and like it's hard not to, to understand that it, it has an impact. So like yeah. when they talk about it, they do treat it like, hey, this is important. So like maybe that part of it is a little accurate. No, one of the, one of the criticisms levied against this show was that you could never put a show dark enough on broadcast yes. television to oh, actually sure. capture the writer's room of SNL. Yeah, it sounds like a fucking nightmare place. The yeah. meanest this show ever gets in terms of like what the characters do to each other is that one of the junior cast members walks up to Harriet Hayes at a party and is like, Oh, so you're one of those, huh? Like, it's just like, <laughs> like that's it. It's like yeah, being lightly ribbed for being a Christian. They're like all in it together. They, they're a family. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. no, they in pray S before the show together. That, they all the hold hands and pray. Yeah. <laughs> but like, what's what's weird about like everything I know about SNL or, or comedy in general is there are there are heavy cliques that all like hate each other and mm -hmm. talk shit about each other. That's true of prob probably any group like that. But there's none of that in Studio 60. I mean, the writers' room has like. The two writers that they think are hacks. And they are dealt with. They are dealt with. They have big <laughs> chips on their shoulders. But like within the writers themselves, there's not a lot of, uh, I don't know. You, you, we, we don't get a sense for like who the writers are as characters. Even once they purge most of the room and we're left with literally two people sitting at a table together. Yeah. Yeah. We never get to know the, those characters at all. There's a British lady who says maybe yeah, Dawn, five Dawn words from the an office. episode. Davis, yeah. Yeah. And they give her like three words and then she's gone again. 
for the next her, hour. Her bit is that when she cries, no one can understand her yeah. except for Andy Makinov, I think. That's that's the whole yeah. bit, because they bring it back in the finale, and it's like, oh, yeah, you remember that character. She mumbled. But, like, <laughs> the most we get any sense of the writer's room is maybe that first episode where we see John Ennis wearing really... Uh, improbable clothing for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, His presence is, I think, yeah, like Josh and yeah, I talked we, about this a little bit. We had Twitter. talked we about like, that, Alec, like how fucking bizarre it was to drop into the writer's room and see fucking one of the members of arguably the greatest sketch comedy yeah. troupe ever assembled in the mm-hmm. world's unfunniest room. I would love yeah. to pick his brain about this show because, I mean, you, you said the same thing, yeah. Josh. You're like, I wonder what was going through his mind yeah. as he's witnessing this funhouse mirror version of what it's like to write comedy coming from Mr. Show. <laughs> and and, yeah. and then, yeah, Albie just tells them all that they should show up like dressed better next time. Yeah. Like they should all be wearing Psychotic. suits or something. When I was doing stand up, like there was like a thing around that era where people would be like, don't wear shorts on stage. And oh, I, and, I and, like, huh. and then there were, there was even like the old fashioned thing, like you should wear a suit on stage, which like a couple people did. That's insane. And most of us thought that was crazy. But yeah, like, I think the, even I think even Louis did it at that point too. Even though he was just like a black T-shirt guy for no, almost thing, all of his career. Yeah, yeah. going yeah. like you should be presentable. It's, it's entertainment. But like that was pretty much long gone by the time I was doing it. But the shorts thing has stuck with me. I'm like, what is <laughs> like, what, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you dictating? What do you think is better or worse about comedy if somebody's wearing shorts? And like, how are you going to convince me that that's like a rule I need to live by? And like, especially if you were starting out in Michigan too. Like, Michigan produces an incredible number of shorts guys. You know, guys. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah. Absolutely. Who short only state. wear shorts all the way I'm through the winter right now. Yeah. yeah, I'm not wearing anything. <laughs> <laughs> you should have written for Studio 60, Alex. <laughs> My dream. I would write for the real one or for a reboot. Season two when? <laughs> Season two when? Jordan comes by Danny's hotel room to approach him about running the show, and there's like a really dumb like 10 to 15 minutes of will they, won't they? But of course they take yeah. it, and then yeah. there's the, really. One of the biggest things that this all pulls together with is a brilliant speech. We love a brilliant speech. We and sure Aaron do. Sorkin really loves a brilliant yeah, speech. Here's, here's St. Crispin's Day. What is the deal with that? Like, what what is the deal with all of the brilliant speeches? The whole West Wing thing is that, you know, rhetoric comes out in the end. Like, if I own right. you with logic hard enough, you will have no <laughs> choice but to sit down and shut up. And a lot of Aaron's work doesn't make any sense, I don't think, unless you view it like a court case. Aaron has time and time again written courtroom dramas because it's a thing he's amazing at because you go up, present your argument, then the other side presents their argument and the stronger argument theoretically would win in like a platonic ideal of a courtroom. And what he's done is take that logic of a courtroom and expand it to literally every aspect of every show he's ever written. That makes sense because it was it was a few good men that really put him on the map, right? That's the thing. And a few good men is still really the thing for Aaron Sorkin. That's the one that everyone knows. Right. Everyone knows you can't handle the truth. Uh, Frankly, it rules. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an incredible exchange. You have fucking Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson doing it like it it's it's good it's it's cinema if somebody in comedy tried to start giving a big brilliant speech everybody would just fucking laugh at them for being so like high on their own supply right i mean i don't know what i like i don't know what scenario anyone would be giving a speech in comedy that i'm <laughs> exactly familiar with like i don't have any experience being in like a big production like snl so i mean maybe there were you do need everyone on the same page. It would serve a purpose ostensibly, but it's still right. insane. It's still like, I mean, I've worked on like TV shows where 
there's a whole crew and cast that need to work together and nobody's ever mm-hmm. given a fucking speech. Right. We have like safety <laughs> meetings and that those kind of end with like, uh, all right, well, uh, let's, let's do some good work today. Yeah, and that's right. all you need. Like working in comedy, working in drama, working whatever. If you're in TV, it's a job to you. I think mm-hmm. certain things that are really popular, you might start to feel like a little more proud of while you're in it. But like at the end of the day, you really just want to do your job and get through the day. I don't yeah. want someone trying to pet me up. That's very condescending. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. like, just tell me what to do. Keep us organized. Make sure we're on the same page and don't fuck us over. Like <laughs> it is a job for everybody. Like the, the grips, the electric team, like they don't fucking care. Right. <laughs> Literally just there. Tell us where you want this light. What's what's the shot going to look like? Okay, well, we'll make sure it looks good. But if you don't know what you want, we're not going to do it. So shut the fuck up. Stop giving a speech and tell us what you want. But to him, the work is all your entire life is based on how well you do your job. And the ones that have to lead us, who lead us forward in comedy or politics or, you know, in the news, they their one like sole purpose in life is to be good at that job. And then there's like love on the side, kind of. But it's only love because they respect how well the other one does the job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think what this show suffers from more acutely than a lot of the other ones that he's ever done is just that there is no emotional life outside of doing the comedy and you need that to do good comedy i think yeah Yeah, i also think like this is going backwards a little bit to like what it would have been like for the comedians but i think most people on snl or a big comedy show or anything like that are generally like if they're not the ones making a lot of money or getting like a lot of the limelight they're generally full of opinions on how this could be done better they're they're bitching Mm -hmm. and moaning about like ah fuck i can't believe i have to do this this way or this is what i thought we should be doing like that's always happening at every that's going all the way down to the pas where it's like Mm -hmm. is this really the best way to do this like i don't know like i I remember like i worked on i think you should leave and that's like one of the few shows where everybody was reading the scripts and like oh this is actually funny Mm -hmm. yeah that was a a Hmm. foreign feeling for a lot of us (laughs) to be on a show that we were like really sure was good and at the same time none of us thought anyone would ever watch it and I remember thinking, it, like, there was like one ad that Netflix put up like two weeks before it aired, and that was the amount of the that was the full extent of promotion they put into it. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, so that's kind of a bummer. No one's gonna watch this. <laughs> and like, yeah. also, we made like no money, so no one was in a really good mood. Like, the best, even on a show like that where the material's good and the star is likable, and like we are happy with what we're doing. Uh, it was still hell for a lot of people because it paid like shit, and everyone's like, let's just get this fucking over with. We can't do the best job we want to do. And it still became, I mean, I don't know if I'm talking too out of out of uh, school here, but like, yeah, it became a big hit. Everyone's really proud of it now. Absolutely. But like, nobody was, even on that, nobody but, but was like, like oh, it's, it's, what a good thing. Yeah. Like, and it's, yeah. Not like, it's not like Tim was getting up in front of everybody at the beginning of every no, day and being that like, been here we go, folks. That would have been. <laughs> I don't like, then you would have been like, Tim, oh, this is going like, to be a huge piece of shit. Yeah. There's an element of like, it would be nice if like the people in charge acknowledge everybody and like make sure they know that they're they're like they're appreciated and valued yeah Yeah. that's great that's different from giving a speech and like some shows we get that feeling some shows we don't but like a speech to me feels condescending for people doing their job yeah (laughs) i I will say this though you know that you know who love who does love a good speech theatrical Mm. actors when you like that first Mm. day of rehearsal thing when you pull everybody together and you go around the room and everybody says their name and then the director gives a big brilliant speech that's like that's necessary for a lot of people in order to feel comfortable in the world of theater is what Aaron knows. Like, AJ, were, were there any yeah. big brilliant speeches during Farnsworth? I bet there was at least one, right? Here's the thing. There were. Uh, yeah. On the oh opening boy. day, Aaron stood up in front of all of us and gave an, an Aaron Sorkin speech. Um, yeah. it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite 
as refined as his written stuff. It was a little bit more off the cuff and it felt Not as many Wikipedia citations. Here's here's the thing that was so interesting about him when he's in his television world. There is this sort of like ego that has been attributed to him. But the theatrical world, he still feels, I think, a lot like a novice because A Few Good mm. Men did not do well as a play. Mm. Oh, and it was the movie that put it on the map. It was the okay. movie that put yeah. it on the map. And the Farnsworth invention also did not do great uh, when it went to Broadway. It got middling to like mixed reviews. It closed earlier than they thought they were going to. Was uh, was To Kill a Mockingbird then his first real like stage hit? It was. It was okay. like his first a bona fide stage hit. So when he talked to us in the room, when he gave that opening day speech, it was full of reverence for us and saying what you guys do is something I do not completely understand. I'm still in awe of theater and the fact that you guys can take these words and make them work in a space with other people is just really incredible. Like he made us feel valued to your point, Alec. Like mm-hmm. he, he he really stood in front of us and, and, and propped us all up. Even a 17 year old who did not know you could not wear a Borat shirt to your first day. <laughs> Of, and shorts of, of a professional show. I was wearing shorts, man. You better not have been wearing fucking shorts. They made they made me change because the lead singer of the Flaming Lips came to that reading because uh, Aaron was writing the book for Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots that oh, Des was going wow. to direct. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, and then that never they, happened. They didn't they never, end up using his book. They yeah. sure did not. They sure did throw that one out. Yeah, and then Des Mackinoff stood up and said, um, "It's very rare that you get a rat to swim back to a sinking ship, but here we are." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was wild. I mean, that, that's something like theater presumably has existed as, you know, like, like it wasn't, it wasn't always a product. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just yes. put on a show mm. and it is like the community doing something for the community. So yes, there is yeah. like something Catharsis admirable that. about that. Yeah. yeah. Whereas TV has always just been, you know, like, yeah, it's a purely commercial it's a, it's a money yeah. situation. So like yeah. when you go to work on a play, you may or may not be getting paid. But I don't think anyone thinks they're going to get a lot of money working in like theater. So it is, it still feels like a community thing where yeah, it's like yeah. TV, you're in LA, you're in New York, you're trying to make rent and this is a gig. Like, yeah, it's not, the, it's not the same thing. You don't need the pep talk. I'm amazed by what you do. Like people are getting paid right. good money, presumably, hopefully. Yeah. And in theater, money is fine. Uh, right. <laughs> no, you know, genuinely, yeah. pl- I mean, it was the most money that I'd ever seen in my entire life uh, at that point uh, in my bank account. But, you know, it is, you know, and the Ho- La Jolla Playhouse does pay well. I do want to say that. They're a great institution. Support them. <laughs> yeah, for San Diego. a theater, though. Again, yeah, like, it's just yeah. a different, it's different yeah. kind of money. Aaron got us all little uh, key rings from Tiffany's as our opening night <laughs> gift. And I looked at it as a 17-year-old and was like, what the fuck am I going to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> After a series of big, brilliant speeches, There is a conclusion of, well, we're going to put on a show and, oh, by the way, that sketch that got cut, remember that sketch that got cut, that one Mm -hmm. that was so controversial, Crazy Christians? Well, turns out Matt wrote it and Uh and they're going to open with it next week. And then Mm -hmm. the bar, the opening bars of Under Pressure play for what felt like 10 (laughs) minutes. Amazing. It's amazing. And then again, setting the tone for the fix it's not the end of the episode either, right? No, 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 it's not. It feels like the episode's about to end and cut to black and it doesn't, like the song ends and the show continues. Like another four fucking minutes, literally. Every episode does this too. Like it has an ending and then it's five or even 10 minutes until you actually close out. Um, But then, yeah, yeah, Matt and Danny take the 
stage uh, to give yet another fucking brilliant speech to everybody assembled, you know, being like, and this is something that I could potentially see is like, we're the new head writers here. Here's what the yeah. show is going to be yeah, like. That's valid. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and that's the end of the episode. That, that, that reminds me of like when like we, we had a show that flipped like the union flipped it and, you know, we needed mm. it needed to be acknowledged by the people in charge. It's like mm. if something yeah. that affects people's jobs, like. Well, the head writer just got fired. Are right. our jobs in jeopardy? Like, you do need to come out and address that. Yeah. And it's also so Bradley Whitford's character wants to get away from cocaine, so he decides to uh, take a job directing a sketch comedy show. I just want to <laughs> just want to like establish that. Sorkin really knows his shit. He With really a does. Harrowing schedule too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My God, that ticking clock, <laughs> which really comes into play in the next episode, I will say. Yes. But there's a couple of things I'd like to say about this this first episode before we move on. Go for it. So I think my first question is if the show were still running would sarah paulson's character be an anti-vaxxer starring in a circus show in nashville (laughs) i want to i also really want to take this time to like sort of celebrate matthew perry's performance in the show because i genuinely think it's great Uh, he's really good he's really good it's very good it's really fucked up i think him him and bradley whitford can carry me through the whole show i like they absolutely can both in it they can both land those punchlines better than anyone because a lot of aaron's dialogue because it is written so much in his voice it really requires requires actors who are able to like fill out the rest of the character just by their own personalities and i think that matthew perry is one of those actors i mean bradley whitford we knew from the west wing could carry Mm -hmm. this but like matthew perry also was on the west wing for a long time but like really just nails this role with and gives it everything he's got and like Um, an insane thing about his performance too i think he's the only one who's supposed to be funny who is convincingly funny. Yes. Like, yes. He yeah. will he will get zingers that like have good timing. They're not necessarily like funny, but they're like convincingly so. <laughs> well, and and, and yeah. convincingly too to your point about like the nature of comedians, he has the sort of cutting yes. wit that it, that that comedy writers have. He's also the yeah. only depressed one there. Like Yeah. Yes. It, it, yeah. It, he's the only one I believe has ever existed in the world of comedy. Like the all the cast members are theater kids who are in denial. They're like improv kids, which is yeah. maybe possible for SNL. They definitely hire improv people. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he also carries like every good Sorkin protagonist worth their salt just has to look so tired all the time because the weight of their genius is like crushing them into the earth you know and you know (laughs) no one does tired like Matthew Perry and he there's a punchline he has when he like finally runs into Harriet walking down the hallway in this pilot uh, where he says we have to delay this fight for two years which he actually lands the plane on in a way that a lot of the jokes in this just kind of fall flat like he he knows how to like hit drive to the end of the line he knows when a punchline like there's even a joke in the second episode which we'll get to in a second but it's like he's telling the the writers and we already kind of talked about the scene where he's telling them to to dress better in that same scene he says like uh you know we just need to keep this professional no no drama no no uh no unprofessionalism at all and then as soon as he says that on cue harriet comes in yelling at him and then he stands up and does a very sitcom performance like and all of that will be beginning shortly yeah Yeah. and he marches out of the room it's it's, it's, like an awful joke it's stupid but like he sells it i think that there's this idea that he's supposed to be like a super neurotic guy which i don't really buy he doesn't give much of that energy instead he just gives cranky energy which is fine Sure. I would argue that of the friends, if you wanted to cast a friend in this role to ha- be that specific thing. Don't like, say David Schwimmer. That would be insane. I am going to say David Schwimmer. That's right. Yeah. No, I'm saying it. I'm saying it. That's that's my opinion. This is solidarity among theater I, people. I think you know, it would be just, a very yeah. different performance. Right, it, it absolutely would be a different character. But like, I, I'm going to argue. I can't believe I'm arguing in favor of Matthew Perry this much. But like, I don't, I don't care about Matthew Perry. But like the weariness he brings to it and sure. that like his, his neurosis in it is like a 
unbelievable level. And I think the performances across the board in this pilot are really good. And I, it seems like critics kind of like went nuts for this pilot. Oh, they went absolutely apeshit for it. Yeah. They called it like the next big thing in television, right? It's a it, promising pilot in some ways. It's really, I here's here's what I feel about the show. Hmm. And the pilot exemplifies this. Like, I think it's a misguided show. I think it has mm-hmm. no yes. idea what it's talking about. But... I think it is the best possible version of the show it was trying to be. This is not the worst thing we've watched on this show by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, nope. it is certainly the most misbegotten. Like, yeah, yes. and part of what I love about it is like you keep, we keep talking about the tension at play here, and it's like it's a well-made show with a lot of great performances and great camera work and like fast-paced dialogue that is interesting to listen to, whether it's talking about something... That makes sense yeah, or not. Right. And like all of that works for me. And then the, the magic of it is that underneath the surface, the show is insane. Yeah. I, yes. I, I also uh, <laughs> compared it to like you're going bowling and every single time you yeah. hit the head pin and every single time you leave the 710 split. And at some point, you're just like, it's like he consistently does it for all 10 frames. You were straight down the middle. You left the 710 split every single time. You know how to get there and you can't make the pins go down. Like, how? And I will argue that the pilot is actually pretty, uh, pretty strong. And I don't think it truly goes off the rails to the second episode. But Brian, what were you what were you going to say? Oh, I just want to read this for a second. This is from the New York Times Mm -hmm. when Studio 60 premiered. There was a lot more television than ever before. Much of it bad. But it is hard to remember a time when there were so many good shows pushing up against the worst. Mm. Dramas, especially whether on cable or on broadcast networks, have never been as beautifully or thoughtfully made. Mm. Few Hollywood movies even come close. And Studio 60 serves as Exhibit A. It is gorgeously filmed with the kind of long, sweeping track shots that used to be associated with Martin Scorsese. No, no, And are now more often cited as a trademark (laughs) of Thomas Schlamme, an award-winning director of The West Wing. Scorsese's shots are very different than Schlamme's. Absolutely. The camera moves in both types of shots. It sure does. (laughs) Certainly. The font is the same as The West Wing. They use the exact same font. Trajan Pro. Oh, lovely. Wow. That's, I am actually <laughs> All you font heads out there going down the I'm, I'm, I'm a dedicated font head. Yeah, that's Trajan. It's a signature of, of all of uh, uh, his, his yeah, shit. It's my favorite Ayn Rand story. He's a story. font and head, yeah. God the damn font it. Head. Yeah. Yeah. Font the font head. <laughs> Dear God. Wow. What's worse is that we were both coming up with the joke at the same Terrible. time. So, like, Terrible. That's I, not good. I would like to also <laughs> take a moment to sort of reference, you know, there's a lot of talk about like how you know, Aaron writes basically ubermensch kind of characters, right? And I want to just take a moment to sort of push against that idea because I don't think that he believes that they are superior beings. They're like the characters on his shows are superior beings because they were born that way. I think that he... Oh, yeah, absolutely not. He yeah. is just like, anyone can do this, right? Anyone can do what I do, what any of these people do. You just have to work hard, and if you work hard enough, you're going to get everything you want which is why i think it's very interesting in the show when he like goes off against bloggers who are like saying bad things about the show (laughs) or trying to take him down it's like they're losers because they're not working as hard because if they worked as hard as me they would be as successful as me yeah there's like a line where simon styles is like don't listen to that blogger she's probably just sitting at home in her pajamas yeah, like, uh, yeah. Mr. Calling them, 
They start calling them pajama people for the rest of the show. This is especially weird because the West Wing really took off because it was one of the first TV shows to have a dedicated online fan base. Yes. Yes. And um, in Studio 60, they even noted how big the online fan base for Studio 60 was. Not big enough to, you know, have the show run for more than a season. But <laughs> yeah, that was the key to his success. But and, and this shows up in the newsroom again because he hates he hates commenters on news sites, which I mean, we all do. Um, but like. Yeah. Especially hates news sites that are that are just websites. He hates Gawker. He hates all of these things that are eroding society, which just involves people on the Internet watching your TV show. Yeah. I just want to say that there are 157 pages of fan fiction for (laughs) Studio 60 on fanfiction.net. I'll read all of them. I'll read every single (laughs) word. Yeah. A lot of it is actually very sweet. I mean, I I, I don't know. A lot of Matt and Danny fucking. Is it a lot of like? uh, It's actually surprisingly (laughs) little. It's a lot of Matt and Harriet. And they're all very pure because how many of these boring. did you read aj you <laughs> like many of them are actually quite nice how many of the 167 pages did you delve into josh i read enough okay uh, many pages. I, could, I could knock that in an afternoon yeah <laughs> he read about yeah. half of it because he actually wrote all the rest yeah i, I sure did yeah. um but there is like a nice f- a fan fiction sort of like tension between matt and harriet because you know it's a it's a forbidden love right she actually mm. can't sleep with him because that would be against her like morals as a christian even well, though not really though because she talks show, about yeah, yeah she fucks yeah, yeah in the show she she's fucks. just like i'm fine with premarital sex like it doesn't bother me it's between me and god you know but like yeah i think there was an av club article that talked about like uh my year of flops i believe it's called he says after the pilot you know the show could be anything it could do anything yeah so once we get back from the break we'll find out how exactly it went <laughs> and and uh and right when we get back from uh, this week's sponsor, um, oh God, my fiance. <laughs> hey, listeners, Ellie Phillips here. You may be familiar with me from the Josie and the Pussycats episode. I come to you, listeners, with a problem, a Studio 60 problem. You know, it started small. AJ watched all of it in preparation for this episode, which I need to stress, he absolutely did not have to do. And when he finished, he just put it back on the TV. He just went back to rewatch episodes. And he kept saying things like, this one is actually good though, and muttering about how he's gonna turn Macau into the Las Vegas of East Asia. Anyway, I've tried to speak to him directly, but he just keeps asking me to become a sunset stripper like him. So I have decided to take out a commercial in order to beg for your help. Oh, and side note, if you'd like to buy ad space on this podcast, you apparently need to fill an unmarked envelope with $5,000 dollars cash and quote your wettest meats end quote and take it to the corner of clinton and bryant street in red hook where a man in a long trench coat and a face you can't quite see will take the envelope and put it into his trench coat and you'll swear you hear the sounds of ferocious chewing from within but think it impolite to ask and then he'll give you a link to a google drive and a novelty pen that says property of selino and barnes before naruto running away down the street so Please, understand, I didn't do this lightly, but AJ has started making me just walk the length of our apartment whenever we have discussions and gets frustrated that the ambient sounds don't do it like WG Snuffy Walden does it. And when I said that couldn't possibly be a real name, he told me to get the sork in or get the sork out and thrust a piece of paper in my hand that just had business document written on it. 
I know some of you have a hard time hearing the difference between AJ, Brian, and Josh. Well, now I cannot tell the difference between AJ, Bradley Whitford, and Matthew Perry. And every time AJ does anything around the apartment, he stands back and looks down at what he's done with a satisfied little smile, just like Matthew Perry after very model of a modern network TV show in episode two, The Cold Open, which is a fact that I know now, very much against my will. And now he is starting on his third rewatch because he's totally Jordan-pilled. I'm begging you, listeners, please don't encourage this. There was a time, pretty recently, when he was so excited about rewatching Lost. There's so much there, he said. So what do you say, friends? Let's all get really amped about Lost. Nay, let's demand Lost content from AJ in the hopes that we can once again forget that Matthew Perry's character's last name is Albie, and that the utterance of the words The West Wing shouted at Alice and Jenny during her guest appearance signaled to me a complete collapse of time and space. Thank you for your time and consideration. Look, I I'm not original or smart or funny or nice or good or anything. Wow, <laughs> wow, uh, it's my favorite song lyric. In the, uh, <laughs> yeah. in the immortal words of Matthew Perry as Matt Albee, Mazel. <laughs> For what? Not being any of those things. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Mm. Mm. And uh, and a Mazel to you as well. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> God mazel us, everyone! I cannot believe at one point Bradley Whitford screams at Matthew Perry that to ask him to be a little bit more Jewish about it. Yeah, I get the impression from this show that Aaron, we're back. Um, <laughs> we're back, Aaron, everybody. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> that Aaron, who is Jewish, has never met a Jew. Um, he. Has also never met a Christian, despite being inside oh, at least one Christian that, that, multiple times. Oh boy, I have <laughs> so many questions about that. As we go now into um, episode two, the cold open, about how Aaron Sorkin seems to have never met a Christian before. Yeah, or anyone like of any religious practice ever. That's what. That's how his writing always comes across. Even though I'm pretty sure all these conversations with Sarah Paulson's character, Harry, are fully based on conversations that he had with Kristen Chenoweth when he was dating her. What do we think this show is about? <laughs> I know it's, that's a weird one to come yeah. back from. Right, do, the do, 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 it's, like, it's a really good question because there yeah. isn't a good answer at all because right, it's yes. not... It's literally just him like, oh, this would be a good premise, and then charging forward. Yeah, blind into the dark, swinging his sword, killing people on the way. There is a lot of Aaron Sorkin working through his shit. There's just a certain way that he writes. He can't get out of that mind prison. Yeah. He has a very specific style, and it's always going to be there. Even if he works with a big-ass writer's room, the way that he takes those scripts is he always filters them back through himself, completely rewrites someone else's yep. script yes. as his own, and then he will put it aside, not look at it, and rewrite it again from memory. So it is a purely <laughs> like Aaron Sorkin product. Right. And so what you get, you get a lot of repeated things. You get a lot of quips that will show like there's a, a YouTube supercut of like specific lines that have been repeated oh, over sure. the course uh, of his yeah. career. Yeah. Because that's yeah. and it's not like the rhythms he hit. We he were meant to be yeah. we were meant to be yeah. explorers. He's not doing it on purpose. There's even two points in this one season of, of a show where someone says fraction of a man. They call someone a fraction of a man, which is such a bizarre thing to say in the first place, much less <laughs> twice in separate episodes. Oh, he uses feckless a lot. I love yeah. feckless. Oh, yeah. It's such a good word. There's just like 
he has a sort of hacky way of writing that's just how he's going to address anything, even when it gets too personal and too uncomfortable. It's like watching Glenn or Glenda. Well, and one such instance of this writing is right here at the very beginning of episode two. You know, it opens with a press conference. Aaron Sorkin yeah. loves a good press conference. Oh, he loves, them. <laughs> loves it to bits. Um, you know, Jordan, again, we will remember uh, she is the president of or she's the head of programming at the network. She's meeting the press because it's a brand new job. And also people are wondering about the whole like turnover at Studio 60 about like the fucking, the you know, West Mandel blow up. Just exactly. Happened. His wow. network yeah. moment. Um, and so she goes ahead and introduces Matt and Danny. And it's like, hey, here's the new guys. And Danny immediately is like, yep, I did a whole bunch of cocaine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just blurts it out in front of everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is his I am Iron Man moment, basically. <laughs> and I forget, yeah. is this the moment where Rapture Magazine stands it up is. and asks the question? Yes. It is. Yeah. <laughs> With, okay, I just... In terms of naming conventions, this is an all-timer for me. A woman stands up representing Rapture Magazine and introduces herself as Constance Gower. The nature of this journalist or whatever is supposed to be an offended member of the Christian right who, again, is really mad about crazy Christians. Yeah, yes, um, right. This this sketch, the legendary <laughs> crazy Christian sketch, which apparently he wrote before leaving the show right. years ago, well, they were only going to produce like last week. Yeah, yeah. what's like, crazy about crazy Christians, Alec? Yeah. Let's, let's well, hear like, it. First, first of all, has there ever been a sketch on SNL that like people were really controversially just like, oh, what the fuck did oh, they just like do? Oh, like actually that? mad about? I certainly like, can't think of I don't one. think there ever has no, been. No, I mean, other um, than just people generally being mad about like impressions of Trump. Yeah, pe like, right. people might think like a, a sketch sucks or that they like are platforming bad people, which are always very valid complaints. Yeah. But like yeah. there's never been like a sketch that offended the American moral fiber to the degree that crazy Christian seems to be doing. Right. And on top of that, it is really important to remember this sketch hasn't aired. Yes. Yeah. And I guess they imply the script has leaked and like the description of it is leaked. But like people don't usually like care to like find out what the next new sketch on SNL is going to be. That's well, not... I think what's weird about it too is that, yeah, not only do we never see it, we never really get even a description of what it is. Yes, honestly. they completely avoid it. It's a cowardly move. I will never respect the show for not doing it. Yeah. Like yeah. my favorite yeah. thing out of everything about watching this show is freeze framing it when they're looking at the board of all the sketches. I wrote oh, them yeah. all down. Yeah, I, I did yeah. too. I did too. I used to, if you look through my Twitter, I used to like, whenever I rewatch it, I would always like tweet out the, the pictures of the sketches yeah. again. Uh, there's a board in the background on the set that says Jamaican me crazy barbecue. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Centaur the courier. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that kind of feels like it could be 80s SNL, actually. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably has the most legs on it. Like literally. I deliver mail and I'm half a horse. Yeah. There's one that says like Julia Child's Child, which is yes. like incredible. <laughs> that's, that feels SNL to me. Uh, yeah, it's one joke, but it could, you know, you could see it happening. There's, there's two on here that are making me laugh just by looking yeah. at one of them is beating up Rudy. <laughs> yes. Which I think is a Cosby show thing, uh, because they do do a lot of Cosby impressions. I thought it was Rudy, Rudy Giuliani. I, I thought it was instead of giving him jerseys at the end of Rudy. Yeah, oh, I thought, Rudy, I thought the, oh. the, the diminutive football player played. I, by I like that we all went in different directions on that one. <laughs> wow. Well, and I, I would assume most of these sketches. These these stickers that are on the board were probably dreamt up by the production design team. Yeah, maybe. Not always though. Maybe. Like, sometimes they do get referenced, and sometimes they are like okay. 
part of the plot in a way. Yeah, right. Because Commedia, uh, the Commedia right. del Arte sketch. Oh, yeah. uh, fucking com- I will say, I oh, I, I will say, uh, I f- for whatever reason, the one that made me laugh was the one called Vacuum Championship, just yeah. because I don't know what it means, and I love, I I love the world of possibilities that is implicit in that title. Matador Bank Teller. Yeah, <laughs> because, because Centaur the Courier made it through, so you okay. can't have Centaur the Courier. <laughs> And get a Matador Bank Teller for sure. <laughs> salad, extremely hard copy, the DGA Awards. Really enjoying which looking is, at these. Which points up another issue with this show, which is that the sketches are not funny. By oh, any stretch of the imagination, uh, they're not funny. And making it even weirder is the fact that when they are shown, the, the timing of the laughs, the laughs are so and the weird. timbre of the laugh <laughs> is wrong. It's just wrong. There's no other way it's to put my it. My like, favorite thing in the show, because like looking at the sketches is the one thing, but this yeah, is the other yeah. big one, is getting to see a peak. They never, they're mm-hmm. too scared to show you a full sketch. Yeah, right. they are not confident. They, they know, know that the sketches are bad. Right. They know, they, they know they're bad, and they also know they need to show them sometimes. So you get snippets. Yeah. You get them like in the background or like, as exposition at the start of a scene, like an establishing shot, like you see yeah. the beginning of a sketch and the camera whips over to characters talking yeah. mm-hmm. and they're always the most surreal experience. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's a sketch that's not written to be funny, but to imply that sketches exist in this world. Yes. To do like a, like a cursory impression of SNL. It's like you were, it's like you described the concept of a sketch to somebody who doesn't yeah. understand what jokes are and what mm-hmm. humor is. And then they tried to reconstruct it from memory. It's the weirdest fucking thing. And then the timing on the laughs, because of the fact that they weren't actually shooting it in front of a live studio audience, means that they had to sweeten it later on. But because the laughter doesn't, the jokes aren't funny. They don't know where to put them. They don't know where to put them. And so where the laugh happens is uncanny because it just isn't where it would happen. Like it's that, a David this, Lynch sketch show. Yeah, all the lines are out yeah. of order. This even happens during the uh, the the network monologue, right? The audience keeps laughing. It's like, don't, right. no, stop laughing. Stop but laughing. It's yeah. like they're not they're laughing. Not laughing. Even at the end of the line, right? Like, even if it's not funny, just put it at the end of the line. Yeah. But he's like three syllables in, and they're already the gone. The laugh comes often before the line <laughs> finishes. It gives this weird sense that you are not in the real world. Yes. Yeah. And it and it throws everything off kilter like it doesn't seem (laughs) like it should but like this has the power to completely derail the entire show for me Mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely and (laughs) i need a super cut of just all of the sketches i almost i literally almost did that once i was like just gonna start posting aaron has an excuse that he uses a lot when asked about the sketches on on studio 60 and saying well what we're seeing is the dress Right. We're seeing all the rehearsals for it. And so they're supposed to be bad because, you know, they're still, you know, they're still That's being fine. That's not always the case. A yeah. lot of the yeah. time we're seeing the show as it happens. We so, do see one full sketch actually yeah. in this episode, which yes, is we do. less of a sketch and more of a musical number. This whole episode is like water. Like Matt is frantically trying to figure out what to write for this first episode. He doesn't have a cold open. Right. He doesn't have a cold open. That's the, the thing it. that it's... the whole episode hangs on. Without a cold open, how are we going to know that the show is different, that it's under new management, that we want to do something exciting and artistic and fucking fulfilling with it? Because again, <laughs> it's this idea that they care about like this really high-minded bullshit and they want to change the face of America through comedy or whatever. <laughs> and, and the insane part about this is when they finally figure out what to do. This is Sorkin's idea of what... <laughs> This like seasoned TV comedy writer is going to come up with. <laughs> yep, 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 is yep. Is an homage to a Broadway musical. Yes. 
<laughs> like not even an operetta if, yeah oh, oh, sorry, a 19th yeah, I, century I, I, british I operetta about this how dare you not know the difference between a musical <laughs> and that's an operetta. my fucking point is well, like, here yes, also yes. didn't have anything to do with commedia alec <laughs> yeah just in case oh, you didn't know the fucking commedia jokes made me want to fucking rip my own goddamn balls off <laughs> i hated it you're right, i alec. hated it i hated that i knew what they were talking but, about but they shouldn't they shouldn't know they shouldn't know this doesn't make sense characters should no. know as much as I know about this. This should be yes. an insane thing for them to reference, let alone have two other people in the room know what they're talking about, and mm-hmm. let alone decide this is going to be the big idea. Let Absolutely. alone have it actually work and be a hit for the show, and everyone <sighs> nodding going, we did it. We fucking pulled it off. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where this episode is going. Uh, we will get there and we will talk about this more in excruciating detail yeah, okay, when okay. we get there. But I, I agree, like Ugh. fucking insane, insane, insane. So we start getting a little bit more backstage stuff. We start learning yep. a little bit more about Harriet and her relationship to the rest of the cast. Yeah, uh, she, her relationship to the Lord. Yes, yeah, our Lord. Uh, she's just Lord. not given a whole lot to do. I don't, I, I keep watching this thinking, I don't think this is particularly fair to like, Christian Chenoweth because no. like yeah. I feel like Christian Chenoweth is also first of all you cast Sarah Paulson in this role she's supposed to be a singer like a really great singer right. fully like comedic top of her yeah. class like Christian and, Chenoweth and they just right. don't give her anything to show that off I don't know so, if Sarah so Paulson ex- can do that let's explain this Christian Chenoweth thing yes, right. yes. so she worked on the West Wing in I, I don't know what in season the post she came Aaron on. years she started working on That's it after Aaron had already but left. somewhere yeah. along the way they started dating during that period of time. Yeah, so so Chenoweth and Sorgan had broken up not too long before Studio 60 was being made, mm-hmm. and it seems like he's mostly just trying to relitigate that relationship in some strange <laughs> Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And work through it. It's a lot of him working through his demons in this show. This is the um, darkness that's bubbling beneath yeah. the surface, where it is like a bad man trying to publicly reckon with what he's done yeah and make so, sure people know he's not a bad man <laughs> yeah yeah he's I, just a flawed I'm man i'm not bad i'm nice actually <laughs> so so christian chenoweth is from small town oklahoma the town where she was from i forget the name of it it's about a hundred thousand people now but it was like five thousand back when she was born i don't know how christian she is currently but um i i guess she's probably still evangelical christian but like she's not a political reactionary, but they keep bringing up her Christianity as being like a big barrier because of homosexuality and stuff, even though Sorkin in his writing and in his analog characters in his own show mm. are way more homophobic. But they're homophobic in a way that makes sense, Brian, and that is yeah. a quote <laughs> from the show. It feels like so much of this religious angle is fueling a lot of plot lines, especially for both of yeah. those characters. And yeah. it's all shit that I think isn't interesting. Like you guys talk oh, about yeah. like the, stu- the studio stuff not being interesting. I think this is less interesting than that. And it's weirdly looping back around to being like one of the strangest parts of the show now because so mm. much lip service is spent talking about try they, they both have arguments that they bring to the table about like they sound reasonable if you're not thinking very hard like uh yeah, yeah. back when everyone would get into arguments on youtube comments at you know here in yeah, 2006 like, H- harriet hayes going like i didn't do that show for the racists who hosted i did it for the audience that watches yeah. it and it's like well yeah. i guess whatever like you know fine and then and then matt will be like well, you were on that show performing for basically the KKK. I'm like, well, no, chill out. Like, both of them right. have like poor arguments, and they sound like people who aren't 
thinking through what they're talking about. Like it's, it's really unsatisfying to hear like people not come to a relationship and actually put effort in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and it sounds like the sort like Sorkin himself is not putting effort into these thoughts. Right. But it's also seemingly about stuff he's actually dealt with to a degree. So mm-hmm. it's even weirder that it's not informed. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. That That's what makes me wonder is like, to what extent is this informed by personal experience? You know, because is it just that in his relationship with Kristen Chenoweth, he never really tried to understand her faith because that's certainly what it seems like. But his yeah. arguments don't seem like he's thought them through either. Exactly. So it's, yeah. like, it's all yeah. it's all just like magical sky fairy shit. It's yeah. so irritating. It and feels like surface. nothing is being said or discussed. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and have, I'll kind of give it a little bit of credit. Like the atheism versus religion thing was kind of like relevant at this point like it feels very quaint yeah. it feels very yeah. quaint now but like this is pre Ricky Gervais doing right like <laughs> four HBO specials about how Noah's Ark is a silly idea and it's like okay dude we know and then yeah. the entirety of the invention of lying <laughs> oh my god yeah yep. and, uh, and, so, like, and was it Bill Maher who did Religious is that yes yeah, yeah. yeah and they mm-hmm. name checked Bill Maher too well and that was specifically because of the one like correct thing Bill Maher ever said which was that the hijackers on 9-11 weren't cowards because a coward doesn't like actually fucking suicide bomb right. something, right? A coward does something that has no consequential impact on their own life or their own body. And that got politically incorrect. His show at the time uh, canceled and has left us stuck with Bill Maher, the fucking martyr oh, ever since. <laughs> there is a very effective scene, I think, near the end of the series where it's it's Harriet Hayes and it's, it's Matt Albee in his office and they're talking about how they've had the same fight for six years. Yeah. And then... <laughs> it cuts to them having the exact same fight over the course of six years and just time jumping like in between lines that I thought to be I found was very effective because it was in that moment that I realized oh the fighting is actually what they love like this relationship is built on this one fight and it's these two people coming to the realization that oh maybe that's a terrible thing to build a relationship on and maybe we need to start fresh with something different Mm. sure but crucially I don't think the show realized that until that moment, if they even did. Yeah. So up until then, it's not serving that narrative purpose at all. Yeah. No, for that's, sure. like, that's like a, that's a save, if anything. Yeah. And a lot of the show kind of feels like trying shit out and then seeing if it sticks. And if it doesn't, we abandon it. Which I love. Matt, Matt <laughs> has an imaginary friend for an episode. He okay. sure does. Oh my God. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> they, no. do, they do the ending of The Shining. Oh. <laughs> like that episode is so weird because it's, it's, like the first real flashback episode, there's one that kind of starts at the end and then ends in the middle and goes back to the beginning in the middle of the first part of the two-parter. But this episode flashes back to when everyone is younger and you can tell because Matt Albee is wearing a hat backwards. Yeah, yeah he yeah. turns into Luke from Gilmore Girls. It's the and there's opposite this of wearing glasses to show that time has passed. Yeah. You put on a backwards <laughs> cap to show that you've gone back in time. I was like, Ben yeah. Platt. And, and when they go back <laughs> half as far to like when he was previously on the show, but just before he got fired he's still wearing a hat but it's forwards <laughs> yeah so, so there's this very gradual rotation we, of the we hat until the it's finally degrees. that's a theater move it's very interesting yeah. because that that's a very cool staging trick like in order to age someone on stage like yeah, do that that's fine but on screen so it's he, like um, what's happening so he yeah he has this moment where like he sees another writer who's packed his shit up and leaving he's like yeah i got fired for doing drugs and he's like oh man but you're one of the best writers here and then like at the end of the episode 
episode, we realized that writer didn't exist. And Matt Albee just decided that he needed someone else in his psyche to be doing the pills that he himself was doing. And he has a moment where he's looking at a fucking picture like at the end of The Shining and it's him standing not wearing a hat backwards, but wearing the clothes <laughs> of that fucking guy who was leaving at the beginning of the episode. Why? I don't know. I don't know beautiful. what, it's what never that accomplishes. Up again. It's really, really great writing. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Where was Aaron Sorkin at at this point in his life? Because yeah. I think that helps explain the lion's share of what's going on here, right? Like the, the anger, the yeah. inability to find a consistent thread, the fact that unlike most of his work here, it is so clearly something that is coming from like this personal, like I need to write my way through this shit. You know, there's a lot of other things about his writing that I don't care for, but he is all generally really good at staying in the world of the show rather than yes. bring his own bullshit into the show. And in this case, it's so clearly his own bullshit on display all the time <laughs> through multiple characters. And then he took yeah. the worst lessons away from it and applied those to the newsroom. That's yes. the craziest yeah. The newsroom fact. is important to talk about here because it does feel like the superpowered version of this show. Yeah, this became his practice round. That became yep. the newsroom. Yeah. If yeah, I can AJ. relitigate my old relationships, I can relitigate the fucking news. Right. I can <laughs> change the world. I can change. Right. I gave this failed relationship a happy ending. Right. Yeah. I create I made a Hollywood romance out of heartbreak. So why can't I make why can't I save the heartbreak of this nation and give the nation a happy ending with the newsroom by accurately reporting the news? Because here's the thing, too, is in between that and newsroom is social network. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, Where. Yeah. Which it's, I like. Which yeah, is one of the movie. phenomenal movie. greatest movies ever made. It is not one of the greatest so movies good. ever made. Yeah, Josh, we know Top Gun Maverick is, is the, the greatest, greatest movie, movie ever made. made. <laughs> the reason why is because the social network deals with what happens, like what are the actual consequences of being the smartest guy in the room? You end up alone and sad. And it's actually about something important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's a return to him writing about things that matter. It's an adaptation of a real story with real people who made real decisions, and so he's able to map his dialogue onto things yes. that are not in this bizarre fantasy world. And it's a good yes. choice of style to apply to that story, in yes. my opinion. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I remember when The Social Network came out, everyone was like, well, this is too hard on Mark Zuckerberg. And, yeah. and now, in <laughs> retrospect, it's clear that if anything, he didn't go hard enough. It, he he saw clearly Sorkin saw something going on there. He 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 was in this yeah. case a very accurate judge of character and and wrote something true. And I think that's what's interesting too. Is like one of the things that makes Studio Sixty yeah. such a fucking insane experience is yep. that. Almost none of it rings true. It feels very, yes. very false. The vast majority He's of the time. never been more wrong. <laughs> well, no, it's, that's, that's part of what I love about the show. And it's really not me being like, the show's so bad, it's good. I, I'm not like, I, I don't like the show ironically. I love watching it because it's this weird, like, synthesis of terrible decisions, good execution, uh, <laughs> like a dark core, like, like mm -hmm. a bad man going through his worst period and trying to to like like you said relitigate like how he feels about himself how he want, how he wants you to think about himself through multiple characters of the show it's got so yeah. much going on that feels evil <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that is also just wildly confident i've never seen a more 
a more confident show get more things wrong about its yeah. own subject matter. It's yeah. manic, it's like said, isn't like, it? It feels very manic. Well, it would be like one thing if it got everything wrong. But we've already talked yeah. about it. He, he gets yeah. like the relationship with actors right. He gets the details of television production right. Right. Yeah. So like it's the it's the mix of the things that work and the things that don't that feels really compelling to me. There's a there's a two parter where they go into like like with John Goodman in the middle of yeah, nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Have to deal with day, like baby. Rural America for a second. So they, they try to talk about that. Yep. They try to talk about yeah. the war. They try to talk about uh the prestigious lineage of comedy. They try to talk about like Networks. Oh yeah, the whole who, the whole like, uh, fucking who's on first thing with, that is one with of my the favorite people bits. from yeah. like Ohio who have for some reason never heard of who's on first. Yeah, like these, no. these are people in their sixties in like the year two thousand. They know exactly what who's on first is. They saw it live, and it's so <laughs> sinister because like Nate Cordry's character there, Tom Jeter, is walking through the studio yeah. showing his parents. This this studio that they filmed Studio 16 that he has so much reverence for that they shot all these amazing comedies here. They right, memorized all the architecture shit and about the yes, building every day. They've never you, seen a TV show. They're like, I just want to talk about corn and the president. Like <laughs> that's the big that's the that's the the thing you really immediately see is like how insane this disconnect is of like this this family that is so disappointed in their son for being a, a hoity-toity comic. No, they'd be so thrilled that their kid's on TV. Yeah, yeah. Also, watches TV. They're, I mean, they're also, like, really mad that, that their son, like, doesn't appreciate that their other son is out fighting for America. Yeah. Which yeah, is this weird. episode ends with like this outburst where his dad's just like, "Well, that's swell, Tom, but your <laughs> yeah, brother's standing yeah. in the middle of Afghanistan." Well, so, <laughs> the under the under discussed part yeah. about this is how much fucking Kool Aid Tom Jeter has drank here. Uh-huh. Like, yes, oh, yeah. This is this is like not like I, I. I'm sure there are people on SNL who are just like fully in it like this, but this yeah. guy, yeah, is so fucking in love with being on this show and i've been in situations like like i worked at absolutely for many years and when i first showed Mm -hmm. up i was interning and i was starry-eyed and i'm like this is amazing this is where they made tim and eric this is where they made nathan for you eric andre show i'm like you know i'm I'm a i'm a fresh-eyed la kid do you know the the people who are not like that at all the people who are at the top who've been there for the longest. So like this cast yeah, member yeah. would be yeah. the most jaded one there. He would not care about <laughs> any of this. <laughs> it's like yeah. you talk to a PA there, maybe that's what they'll tell their parents. But like, the mythos that it builds around Studio 60 and how much every character believes in it and treats it like what they're doing is the most important thing in the world is literally yeah. just like it, to me, it reads as a byproduct of the West Wing. It's like all of his mm-hmm. characters Right. Th- like think and are probably much more accurate in thinking this that like what they are doing is of grave importance because they're dealing yes. with global issues and a country like that depends on their decisions and yeah. applying that same level of gravitas to SNL is so fucking funny to me the right. whole way through it's the series wild. <laughs> because it's like you said earlier Alec people who have been on SNL will still talk about the institution they will talk about what it did for them they will talk about if they if they had a good experience with it they'll I think particularly do that because they want to continue to have access to Lorne Michaels' money on its slate. Right, yeah, yeah you, um, you can't like bite the hand that feeds right. in that situation. Um, I, like. and, and, and that makes sense, right? But there's such a gap between those things and 
it's it also comes back to this question of like, what is work to people? There's this whole back and forth with like, there's a fucking affiliate in Terre Haute, Indiana that's refusing <laughs> to show Studio 60 because of crazy yeah. Christians. And it's like, and so they're just filled with this sense of importance. Like, we've got to do the show. And it's like, none of this would ever fucking happen. What's crazy is the closest analog I can think of in real life that SNL has ever gone through is, and this is something that, something that was announced pre-show is having mm. Trump host. Mm-hmm. And the country had taken note and had a lot of thoughts on it. And I'm sure the people on the show had very conflicted thoughts. Like it's, that's the only yeah. instance I can think of. And it's not about like a sketch that leaked early. It's, it's There's a bit a little bit later on in the series where two of the like fledgling sketch writers are trying to write a sketch. And uh, Mark McKinney's character, Andy Mackinoff, named after Des Mackinoff, the director of the Farnsworth Invention. Um, <laughs> a man, a man who is presented as being uh, deeply unfunny and totally serious, which yeah. An extremely dry Canadian man. Basically, yeah. Andy Mackinoff says, I don't know what the premise is on the first page. If I don't buy the premise, I don't buy the sketch. And the thing about so many episodes of this show is that I don't buy the premise. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, I can't buy the sketch. I can't buy the rest buy of the, the episode. You the premise of uh, Kristen Chenoweth getting attacked by militant homos <laughs> on a sidewalk, <laughs> which then leads to Rob Corddry's brother getting arrested, and then he has a standing warrant because he went 120 on a Nevada highway because he was bringing supplies to Area 51. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You don't. You don't follow. Excuse premise? me. Excuse me, Brian. They're called gay street toughs and <laughs> gay hooligans. But you at various points. You also didn't finish Hooligans. it, Brian. Not only does that happen, but then he also ends up getting tried in a kangaroo court by John Goodman. Like, it's... It, it's, it's wild. Perfect. It's, it's per- the best TV. The thing is, <laughs> he doesn't understand thing. what middle America is like. He does understand what Nevada is like. It's exactly like well, that. Like, my favorite thing about the John Goodman shit is, like, yeah. he gets out of it because he realizes that his brother is a soldier. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's this like, uh, uh, you, you big city boys, you always, uh, you always think you know what you're talking about. You don't get us <laughs> people down here, but I'm going to let you off the hook. Cause one of you knows someone who's fighting for our country, but let's take it back now again to the events of the cold open. The white stripes are coming. Oh no, they're not. Jack white has laryngitis and their go-to backup is the stone temple pilots. Oh no. What are they going to do? They, they're, they're, they're having trouble finding a musical guest. They don't have a cold open and they need music. Wait, wait, hold, what if, what if, what if they could have the music? Mm-hmm. And the cold open. I don't have a cold open. And unless we find Bin Laden between now and Friday night, we're going to have people's attention for the open. It needs to be too many things. What does it need to be? Self-deprecating, an acknowledgement, and an acceptance. A message from the producers? It should be on a grand scale. What's a grand scale? A song, a big song, a musical number. All right. It should pay respect to where we are, this studio, this city. Keep talking. I'm trying. We take the show seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. That's right. We screw it up, but we won't do it again. Yeah. We'll be model citizens. We'll be a model. We'll be a model. You know who did the best frat humor of all time? Rudy Valley. Groucho Marx. It was W.S. Gilbert. We'll be the very model of a modern network TV show. We hope that you don't mind that our producer was caught doing blow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What do we have that says legacy of television, like Arturo Toscanini and the NBC Orchestra? Jay. What do we have that says? Jay. Jay. So, 
I'm just coming to see you. I'm on hold with Clay Aiken's manager. Then hang up the damn phone. We need John Mocheri and the West Coast Philharmonic. We're also gonna need the LA Light Opera Chorus, and if you can't get them, try the LA Phil or the USC or UCLA Orchestra. Whoever it is, it's gotta be Los Angeles. They gotta be able to play. This is a joke? We're counting on it. No. Okay, now we just need to write the song the rest of the show. And then they all, everyone in the room like pitches one extra thing for it and they all turn and they're like, yes, yes. And it's like this magic. It does rhyme with doing blow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the bit where they're telling Danny Tripp, the musical guests canceled that Jack, that yeah, Jack White the Jack is White sick. Thing, yeah. He starts listing off replacements and he goes, Stone Temple Pilots. And then the PA goes, or whoever it is goes, well, they broke up three years ago and Danny Tripp walks away before she's even finished saying that, get him back together, I don't care, is a moment that is familiar to anyone who's worked in TV where a producer or somebody in charge doesn't care how it gets done, oh, they're sure. asking the impossible. Yeah. And anyone who's worked in TV knows that sucks so fucking much to have to deal with. Uh, yeah, well, this, I would imagine. In, in this show, it's treated like he's the hero. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so charming and good. It's, yeah. It's a, yeah it's, it's a charming thing for him to have done. Uh, it's a funny way to have handled that. And it's like, they're fucking wrong for not being able to solve this with me. Like they don't get how this works. Like, why are they wasting their time telling me they can't do things? And I'm supposed to sympathize with that. But then, you know, it all goes back to Aaron's ethos, right? The idea that if you work hard enough, the impossible can be achieved. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, right? it's really twisted. It's also anti like the little man. It's, well, it goes it's, back to that evil core that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's a really good example of that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that core really shows its head with Dale Hughley's character specifically, mm. because this is, oh, this is, God. this is a, black man who came from the ghetto and worked hard enough that he got himself to be like this huge star right, right? so we're gonna jump forward to an exchange that happens in a future episode that also i think informs a lot yeah. about the way that this episode wraps up there is there's a situation where they want to hire another black writer for the show right yes and dl hughley is the a black, black writer for the show a, a black writer <laughs> yeah. well, at least one because dl hughley is the only black star in the show and he's getting frustrated that there's yeah. no writers that can write to his black voice. Very legitimate problem to have. Yeah, absolutely. And it is treated as a nuisance every time it's brought up. Yes. But Matt Albee eventually generously decides to go with Yo Hughley to a comedy club to scout out some upcoming black comics that they can bring on to write for the show. Yes. And they go to a club and there's a comedian there, a black comic on stage doing like what you would what I would consider like Def Jam material just like classic material about what it's like to be black yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, very, it's very the, typical for the time. It's also kind yeah. of like the Bizarro World version of that because, again, it's heightened. It, yeah, it, it's yeah. heightened. Yeah. And it also somehow manages to not be funny. You know, like mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. the it's logic because a lot of that is personality based. A lot of it right. is like really charming. Like right. a lot of those comedians are just so immediately likable on stage and have huge personalities right. that even if they're not yeah. really telling a joke, you're like, I'm on board with this guy. Which is yeah. also the, 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 the what makes this even more weird. Of course, is the fact that Dio Hughley, like we mentioned before, is one of the original kings of comedy and yeah. so like right. it's that for him this episode must have been insane oh god because <laughs> much yeah. like john because ennis in happens, that writer's room it's like a fucking inversion yeah. of the lived we, we experience we have to like yeah we have to get to the fact that like while this comedian's doing this bit dl hughley gets visibly disappointed and embarrassed and he starts crying his reaction is like i drag i fought so hard i dragged matt albie out here to hire a new black comic and this awful comedian is what we have to listen to and it's just yeah. Your average black comedian. He's fine. It is he's, like yeah. the, the it, music underneath it is like is like so dour and sad. It's treated like yeah. one of the worst. It's treated like like a city just got nuked. Like it's <laughs> yeah. so yeah. awful that this happened. Yeah. And 
they're they're about to give up and they're arguing and deal he's like i'm sorry i I guess we can't hire a black writer for all going to be <laughs> yeah. like this. Like I didn't. Yeah. I ha- I had. I don't hopes. personally know anybody that we could right. maybe yeah. hire. Like, like what the fuck? And then yeah. And then while they're having this conversation, somebody is bombing on stage. Right. Yeah. And it is yeah. somebody. It is a black comedian who is clearly like a Harvard type comedian who is doing cerebral material that is not going to play well in a black comic club like that uh, doesn't have any jokes in it no jokes they, no. but what they respond to is the fact that like he's a little clever he's a little yeah. he, he's and <laughs> well, i'm going to say this bluntly he is a he is writing the way that matt albie envisions comedy should be written and he's a white guy right and he relates yeah. to this material because it's not the def jam material yes, and when yeah. they hear that they're both like now there we go. There's a black comedian we can hire <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he's writing material that traditionally passes as white. <laughs> yes, and we never see again because we can't really see the sketches, and also because th- at this point there's there's now two writers in the writers' room. They had like one writer. Now there's two writers because they hired this guy who they saw bomb on stage. <laughs> yeah. You never see any of his work, right? Because the show can't. Showcase it it, it. Yeah. No, it's, it's literally it cannot back up the premise that it's given you, yeah. which, is, which is like this is the good kind of comedy. And they made a, the right choice hiring this black writer instead of the other one. Like, yeah, the only sketch that actually goes up by him is co-written uh, with Don from The Office and it right. bombs. It's per, its purpose <laughs> is to crash and burn. But this is this is the thing that happens in the show all the time, which is like they will very confidently stumble into a like a, a misguided idea that Aaron Sorkin really believes in. Of course, under any scrutiny that idea falls apart and that's one thing if you're just watching the show and thinking about it but it's another thing if you need to follow up with it with plot points right so those things just get abandoned because if you were to explore it further it would fall apart and and a lot yeah. of those little bits end up falling around dl Hughley's character for whatever reason he mm-hmm. tends to be the one who gets saddled with a lot of these weird little subplots about weird little things i i don't understand ultimately who he is really supposed to be as a character. He largely exists as a device Um, in his core purpose, much like pretty much everybody else in the show is to set up Matt as being this great and glorious, you know, amazing writer guy who just gets it in Danny, this great and amazing director producer who also just gets it. But because of the way that the show is written, it's always telling us and never showing us. Oh yeah. Like the, the whole cast reveres them. Right. Like, yeah. Every 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 crew member, every cast member in the Studio 60 world never questions that Danny and Matt are geniuses. Right. And they're reminding yeah. us at every turn, which is such a Sorkin thing to do. And again, <laughs> even the other showrunners. Yeah. yeah. Like the ones yeah. they they oust are like, oh God, he gets results. You know, poor yeah. dear Evan Handler just gets fucking <laughs> like, thrown to the You build curb. them up as these hacky villains, and they're they're like they don't get any dignity at all. It's perfect that we get. A full sketch. This is the one time we really get a sketch in this show, and it is the cold open here at the end of episode two (laughs) that is so perfect in understanding what Aaron Sorkin thinks comedy is. It's a big moment. It is a lens. Yeah. So let's set this up visually first, like in terms of what we see (laughs) before the thing even starts. Right. We go we go backstage Again, there's this like pre-show huddle. They're they're like fucking. Again, this is a theater kid thing, right? Like they're holding hands and yeah. like fucking yeah, being Harriet like, praise. Yeah. Oh my god! And um, they are all wearing 
all white um, because they mm-hmm. want to look classy or whatever, right? They, they, they look like a glee club. They do. The, the joke, the premise of this bit is that they have to be presentable. Like, they're, right. the, the reputation of Studio 60 at this point is in the gutter because it just kind what, of like self-destructed. What's awful is what you just said actually scans perfectly with the song lyrics. The premise of this show is that they have to be presentable. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you meant logically. I didn't think you meant literally. literally. (laughs) The actual scansion. That makes my head hurt. So it's got like this Follies set to it. It's got like giant stairs (laughs) that come down. Community theater Follies set. Um, Oh God, the kids are really going to knock it out of the park and footloose this year using this this little number. You know, they're all set up. They don't do like any choreography whatsoever. They clasp their hands in front of them like they're singing (sighs) in a choir. They do a little marching. It's so funny. That's what we all know this is so matter danny (laughs) one of them i don't remember which was like Mm -hmm. we need to make this the most big most la thing imaginable you know we need like a fucking we need a chorus we need the usc marching band we need a philharmonic philharmonic be a big spectacle for their comeback right right and so they have now also conscripted the services of a of a chorus and also a band, not yeah. their own it's band. It's an expensive looking bit it, it, for the, in, in yeah. the actual production. I was going to say. Not expensive sounding, because no, they went no. with MIDI. Um, <laughs> but they the, sure did. But again, this show did have a budget of, I want to say, like $3 million an episode, yeah. which is still a lot now. And back in so 2006 they, was an insane amount they, of money. They really yeah. pushed it for this one. Oh, but yeah. w- it sounds awful. It sounds like, you know, glee musical numbers. Yeah. It, it's every voice is just like crushed and like Look, as someone who has rewritten a lot of lyrics to songs in my day, there's nothing that drives me more out of my skin than <laughs> ones that don't completely scan. And yeah. there's so many times in this where the emphasis is just on the wrong word or oh, on sure. the wrong syllable, <laughs> and it's maddening. It's right, maddening. right, like because they have the joke about one of our producers was caught doing blow, but the emphasis is on doing. Was caught doing. Was caught blow. doing blow. And it's like, oh yeah, I love to do blow. Um, <laughs> like, making music land is hard and this is not a song that you're supposed to actually laugh at it goes too fast there yeah. are no breaks no between pauses, lines yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's supposed to be a fun song where you get the little cleverness in fact nothing that there's Gilbert a, and Sullivan ever wrote is actually funny there's a, there's <laughs> one break where there's like Harriet like chastises one of the chorus members for changing the lyrics and that's yeah. the only natural pause for a laugh in the entire bit <laughs> and this yeah. is also the, the thing about the laughter Again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the uncanniness of how they sweeten it in post. Because, again, there's no natural place for a laugh, but they had to put a laugh in. And so they find the places to put in the laughs that have no resemblance to where anybody would actually laugh, setting aside the fact that the thing isn't funny, which is a whole other thing. My theory is it's just when it's quiet. They just like yeah. had to squeeze it in somewhere. So it's like, all right, laugh there. Go, yeah. go. And even that part where she turns around and says, chain, you know, something about the lyric. I couldn't catch what the lyric was. Right. Yeah. Because the song goes too fast. Yeah. Right. Okay. So here is what the lyric is. Uh, oh, boy. They'll happily do the favor of an intellectual reach around. They'll happily do the favor of an intellectual reach around. And then they'll happily do the favor of a hundred dollar hookers reach around. That's not funny. Which Harriet then turns and says, that wasn't the same thing we said. And the chorus uh, corrects it with they'll happily do the favor of a verbal euphemistic reach around which again doesn't scan no it doesn't <laughs> at all like uh, it's actually it's in, the joke is incomprehensible because the scansion doesn't work right because right, right. Your brain is like what is a euphemistic like it doesn't 
It's yeah, like, you can't, you know you can't, can't grasp what they're saying. But also, yeah. like, I'll give it credit. It's a joke, but it's not a funny joke. And right, yeah. I don't think anybody no. in the world would say that's a funny joke. No. It's, Aaron it's, Sorkin was like, you know what? Noel Coward could build a career off of this, and <laughs> so can I. What is the difference between being, like, witty slash clever and being funny? Because I think that there yeah. are numerous... Well, this show is neither, so... <laughs> funny, to me, is, like, just a joke that scientifically works. Like, if it if mm. it's mm. a little surprising or it's got a turn or it's delivered well, like, you can make a bad joke really funny with good delivery. Yeah, so sure. So, there's, there's an alchemical process there that I don't mm-hmm. feel qualified or anybody should feel qualified to, to really get down to the nitty-gritty of. But, like, witty, to me is a little full of yourself you're like because something could be witty as in like oh i wouldn't have thought of that or they thought of that really quick um which also comes into play too like i will laugh at something that isn't that funny if somebody thought of it very quickly yeah and that Mm -hmm. that could be wit for me so wit might be like a a mechanic that aids comedy sure that's maybe a way Mm -hmm. i'd phrase it um if you can you know, put together words in a fast way or in a way that someone else wouldn't have expected. That's a tool to get you too funny. And I mean, there's something to that, like, um, particularly because this ends with a musical number and musical comedy songs are ridiculously hard to pull off. Uh, case <laughs> yeah. in point, one of the greatest composed musical composers of all time, Stephen Sondheim, had a really fucking hard time writing comedy yeah. songs. Well, these people, these people shouldn't be like writing comedy because it's not like right. If <laughs> I mean that in the literal sense of like. Um, a, a song is hard to make funny because yeah. you innately understand the rhythm of a song. You understand yeah. like where the chorus mm-hmm. is going to hit. You understand like for comedy to work, you need surprise. So like a lyric can surprise you if it comes out of left field or if you break if you break the, the format of the song for a second mm-hmm. and when you don't expect them to. That yeah. might make you those are like those are tools I could think of to try to in- inject a joke into a song. P- put yourself in the context of a real person in the universe of Studio 60 who was a fan of Studio 60 and is watching this episode and yeah. is aware of the controversy. The the last showrunner just did a network and and ran off the set and got fired. They brought two new guys on. You know, one of them did blow. And you're watching <laughs> yeah. this and like, yeah, would it be funny to you? And the answer to me is like, well, no, because they're referencing a really obscure musical number. Right. And they're just lightly acknowledging things in the news as if to say, hey, we know. <laughs> and that's even if you can pick up the lyric at all right. from watching it on TV. Well, simply acknowledging the existence of a thing is not the same as commenting on it, right? Right. Well, all, all it does is relieve some pressure, which is like a good tool in comedy because there's a tension you're like wondering, are they going to acknowledge this? Are sure. they gonna, oh, yeah. thank God they did. Yeah. And that could be, that's a great moment to then, like when someone is in the moment of relief, they're very willing to laugh in my opinion. So like, if you can time that with a joke, great. That That's why that would work on paper. But it doesn't work in practice here because every other element is insane. I also don't necessarily even buy that somebody who had been, let's say, a regular, again, taking your, like, you know, Joe Average viewer. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the average viewer would be invested enough in the goings on of this show to care enough to laugh. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about, like... Yeah, who cares about the head writer of SNL? Yeah. Even, actually even if you care a lot about okay. it. Okay, I disagree. Okay, go on. No, no, no. I, I, like, I, like, think there is there is precedent for people to be, like, invested in the SNL drama. Uh, but I, I think I would probably turn off the TV midway through this number. Right. And just be like... <laughs> 
uh, okay. Yeah, this this would be so disappointing. There's so think of right, with that same thing I just yeah. said. Think yeah. of all the insanely funny things you can do coming back. Exactly. The week right. after that happens. Right. Do the like, same speech again. Yes. Yeah. Literally. Like, that's a better. We can come up with thirty better things to do. The than really what they heavy did. thing to do is like you you want to push that as much as possible. You want to be like, oh yeah, no, we're gonna be just fine, and then like, no, the controversy comes back. You mm-hmm. bring the actual guy back on, right? You bring Lauren on stage, <laughs> right? You you like yeah. you you get as close to the actual like hurt and pain of it as possible. That's where you get. The joke that's not only like a good joke, but it's the thing that people are going to remember. Yes. They'll be like, oh, okay, this is where this is going from now on. Can I ask a question of everyone? Yeah, please. And it's, a, <laughs> and it's a question that Aaron himself asks at the end of every season. Apparently, this came to him from one of the producers of A Few Good Men would come into the room at the end of, end of every day for a production meeting. And he would ask the question, what kind of day has it been? Mm. <laughs> which is the season one finale title and the yeah. series finale title. Oh my god! Of it's the, it's Studio the, 60 on isn't the Sunset Strip. the season Strip. one finale of every show yeah. he's ever done? Every yeah. single one. Really? Yeah. So, I didn't know that's the origin of that. I just thought that was like a little trademark he did. So now that we are at the end of those first two episodes, I guess my question is based on the whole series because we watched the whole thing. We sure did. Bafflingly, we watched this entire series. So uh, we only got so to watch of two of them. To to my credit, is saying this is a watchable show. I think that's why. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's that's very, true. It's it, it's compelling in a. Yeah, you want to see what they're going to do. And, and the best example of that, I think, was the Nevada episode where it's like they have dug themselves into a hole. There's no reasonable way to get out of the hole. Yes. What are they going to do instead of a reasonable thing? And even then, I could not have predicted. <laughs> oh, yeah. How that was going to go. Wild. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so what kind of day is it? I mean, what uh, what are our overall impressions of the show and its legacy, I guess? Uh, one thing that I'll say is I went and did some additional reading about like what people were saying about this show closer mm. to the end of its run, because yes. what ended up happening yeah. was the show got canceled. It actually got canceled before it was done airing all of its episodes. It was mm-hmm. uh, slotted in. That time slot was instead given to a show called The Black Donnellys, which is about some fucking Irish people or some shit. Yeah, yeah, um, very, very, very I interesting show. That, that yeah. show also didn't work out. Um, and then what they did was they dumped the episodes after sweeps um, because yeah. they still wanted to air the rest of them because they were already in the can. So NBC and it cost yeah. so much yeah. money. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> NBC brought the show back. They finished it up, and and that's also why there's this really weird like shift that happens on those like back six episodes or whatever, where all of a yeah. sudden the show looks and feels a bit different. The plots make even less sense than before. Somehow Amanda Pete disappears right. entirely <laughs> and yeah. coming it becomes about Afghanistan. It really does. <laughs> Almost yeah. primarily. And so coming away from like watching the whole arc of it, I'm fascinated by this show because in a lot of ways, it does feel like a really good encapsulation of where we were at this moment. And when I say Mm -hmm. we, I mean the country. Like we talked about 24 and that season that we talked about was in the same year. It was 2006. It was the same year that this happened. And it's almost like the yin to 24's yang, where it was trying to take it from like a liberal perspective. It was trying to Mm -hmm. unpack all of this stuff, the way that entertainment interfaces with what we are experiencing but it couldn't get away from the fundamental weird ass assumptions that the country was making at the time about what the world is 
And so yeah. it just feels fucking uncanny from top to bottom because yeah. this was before the world was fucking shattered again. It, we were still processing the trauma of 9-11, yeah. but we hadn't actually figured out how to like we, we hadn't gotten to 2016 where the entire remainder of the illusion fell apart. Yeah. And I think that there was a genuine I think there's something that Sorkin actually captures that is happening realistically, which was the uncanny feeling of like, we're still doing these wars, but we're not really talking about yeah. them anymore. Yeah. And it's him kind of desperately being like, no, Americans really should be talking about the fact that we're still in fucking Afghanistan. And then we're also in Iraq for some reason. But we're it, it's not on the news anymore. It's not sort of the main issue. It's kind of coming up. But like everyone kind of knew that like when Obama was going to be elected, that it wasn't really going to end. And I think that he's trying to deal with that and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And no one knew how to deal with that. Yeah. No one knew how to address that properly. And he does it in maybe the best way possible by making a show that is just as uncanny and bizarre as the reality. And it's <laughs> for very different reasons. Uh, we have to. Yeah. Extremely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this, this show, like, it's funny to call it liberal because at the time i'm sure that's how everyone viewed it but it is yeah. liberal in the bill maher sense <laughs> right, right? Yeah, it's like because he yeah. he's like well democrat you know we have to show people how patriotic democrats are and how we're not afraid to show muhammad uh and apparently yes. young kids don't know who muhammad is and nate cordry played it- muhammad in the sketch <laughs> in the show he played also he played terry shivo which is an entirely different thing um, <laughs> oh, yeah those little those also- little like hints of the era yeah, I also, I also like to imagine that his brother, who is in Afghanistan, has been captured by the Taliban, is it, Rob. Is Rob. Yeah. I was going to say, it would have been so funny if they just do a little screenshot and it's Rob. I would have fucking died. I think this show is special because it's a confluence of a lot of misguided ideas and yeah. a lot of like a lot of talent yeah <laughs> i'm not yeah. a fan of aaron sorkin generally like this and the social network are the only two things i would say i've enjoyed watching of his mm. it was a bunch of missteps a bunch of hype and a bunch of effort and it's also like aaron sorkin at, at one of the heights of his career so it's mm-hmm. like there's a lot going on here that can't happen again uh um, yeah i he's he's a movie guy now you know he's like he's like way past this he's writing You're and directing all his own movies yeah yeah, you're not going to get 22 hours of Aaron Sorkin working through some shit with a huge budget and <laughs> yeah. full confidence and every bad idea in the book. You're not going to get yeah. that again. Alec, is there anything you'd like to plug before we... Yeah, the the, fir- the first easy plug is uh, if you wanted to read my comic, Mr. Boop, we have a hardcover available now through Silver Sprocket. It's just called Mr. Boop. It's about me being married to Betty Boop, which in is real. real. It's real. It happened. Yeah. It's true. No, mm-hmm. No lies in the book. <laughs> and uh, I also have a, a new comic that I'm working on called Crime Hot, and the third one I'm about to release. I don't know, follow me on Twitter, oh, nice. at Alec Robbins. You'll, it's basically porn. That's my warning. I, I'm drawing porn at this point. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's like, what if Cowboy Bebop's characters had more sex? Right. And were and acted like Looney Tunes. But the big, the big plug, if I may, uh, let me find the exact date that this is happening. So, um, shoot, what, what is it? Is it... You can edit this part out. This is the only yeah. part I'll allow you to edit. No, I won't. I won't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so November 19th, okay. I am mm-hmm. putting on a show with my friend Grace, which is a live reenactment of Studio 60 at the Elysian the Theater. Thing? No, no. I think the plan is to do the pilot, but on okay. rewatch, I might, I might try to convince Grace that we should do the second episode instead. Yeah, um, yeah. For a lot of reasons, but there, we can't go wrong with either one. Um, it was yeah. pitched as re- re- as reenacting the pilot, and we'll probably just cast a bunch of LA comedians to play the bits. 
and uh <laughs> I, there's probably going to be a little more like of a twist to it but the core that i that i'm thinking is we it's funny enough if we just recreate the script <laughs> yeah um i actually i did something similar at a theater that we will never name on this podcast that's but, right uh, AJ. <laughs> i did the pilot of the west wing in 10 minutes amazing uh, oh my and, god and uh, i played bradley whitford which is why i can do a bradley whitford impression <laughs> um i'm gonna be matthew perry Oh, absolutely. I will not sell it for anything less. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. the, and the date for that again is November 19th at the Illusion Theater. We haven't even announced right. it yet. This is uh, a oh, great nice. way to announce it. This but, is a uh, worst uh, of yeah. all possible worlds exclusive, folks. <laughs> That's right. You it's incredibly scope. fast, and we really haven't done much prep for it. But... We got a scoop, say. Eh? <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, yeah, I'm excited. It's, if uh, you're in LA, definitely go to see that. I mean, that sounds like <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So there's an element of Studio 60 that we actually have haven't talked about believe it or not at this point and that is the magical clock oh yeah the clock yeah that rests on the wall of matt alby's office along with a giant photo of woody allen which we will not touch <laughs> on this podcast but oh boy it's, uh, it's a haunting specter throughout the whole series <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just kind of peeking into a lot it's, of shots it's so horrifying many, so many scenes in that office and it's just hanging in the background yeah oh man uh and basically every time the seven days counts down and the show goes up it resets uh and it's starts ticking down for when his next deadline is due for the next week to put on yeah. the next show and the series ends after all the happy endings because, you know, Aaron ties up everything with a nice little bow with Matt Albee going back to work like like every great Aaron Sorkin protagonist. He goes right back, dives back into work and he goes and he turns on the clock and it starts ticking, ticking down and he looks into it and he says, I'll make a friend out of you yet. Beautiful. And then a theme song starts playing. <laughs> And that Albie jumps into a fountain and we begin friends. <laughs> oh God, I wish. I wish. <laughs> we didn't acknowledge that Bradley Whitford does a Chandler impression in episode two. Oh. It's wild. It's wild. Um, it's a very knowing nod, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but watching but watching Aaron work through all of his problems in Studio 60. And returning to the newsroom, which is well, is an entirely other bag of tricks, I do hope that while he was working on the newsroom, he somehow made a friend of that stupid fucking clock. I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. See you next time. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Alright folks, that's it for this one. As always, we are brought to you not by any kind of ad money or wet meats, but our patrons over at Patreon. We are listener funded, and if you join today, you can listen to all of our premium episodes going all the way back to the beginning. If you subscribe as a $10 patron, you can also get access to our additional monthly podcast just for $10 patrons. Again, a very special thanks to Alec for joining us on this one. Check out his shit. We have some links to it in the description. And our music is by Brendan Dalton. We'll see you next time.